You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special episode celebrating our Pats and the Batman, featuring Sparkle Vampires, David Cronenberg, Limousine Fucking, Mermaid Fucking, The Fuck Box, Bank Robberies, Pitbulls Being Jerked Off, Amazonian Cannibals, James Dean, 9-11, and Baby Hitler. Martin. Yes. If I had a steak, I'd fuck it. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? I'm good. You ready to get your R-Pats on today? I am. You know, we'll get into the Batman more later, but whenever a new Batman film comes out, you realize how fucking nerdy I am for Batman. It just, it sidesteps all my fandom for anything. Well, and that's a perfect way to segue into kind of the setup for the episode because you pitched this to me. You were like, we need to do a Batman episode. And I looked you dead in the eye and went, no, (laughs) because I just, you know, being a podcast called secret handshake, it's mostly about cult cinema and stuff. That's kind of uh, off the map or at least off the beaten path. We'll, we'd say cinematically like to me doing, one of the biggest superhero characters of all time, maybe the biggest of all time next to Superman. Yeah. Um, It just didn't feel right. Like this is way too mainstream. So, but I also was like, it's your podcast too. So if we want to do the Batman, how can we do it in an outside the box sort of way? And my pitch back to you was, okay, we can do the Batman but let's do it through the lens of Robert Pattinson becoming the Batman. Because the one thing that I've noticed, even in uh, talking to, let's say, normal folks at my job during the day as a bartender, is like a lot of people didn't actually know that there was a Robert Pattinson Batman that I talked to because they would be like, oh shit, yeah, new Batman's coming out. Who plays Batman this time? I'd be Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson, who's that? The guy from Twilight get the fuck out of here. And you're like, well, hold on. So there's like almost a decade's worth of work that he's done outside of Twilight that is really strange and interesting and kind of almost solely auteur driven. It's like him handpicking major directors like David Cronenberg or Claire Denis, you know, these uh, legacy filmmakers in the uh, later years of their career and then also working with dudes like Robert Eggers, who is like... And the Safties, up-and-comers. And the Safties. Yeah. And uh, David Mashad, like these up-and-coming, like renegade kind of artist types. And really becoming almost the poster child for A24, like elevated genre stuff. I didn't... So we ma- you made this list for us to kind of go through. Because obviously he is honestly really prolific. Like he's made and he'll do a lot of bit roles and kind of indies here and there. And like he's done quite a few films in the last decade and getting rewatching a lot of these films for the pod. I was like, holy shit, like 
half of these are A24. And they're very, he is that perfect vibe for A24 and what they're going for, elevated, elevated genre. He, cause he can do it. He can, he can lean into and, and be in a, a lived in world and a kind of elevated world, but also bring the goods for it to be entertaining. One, well, he's also sort of a walking marketing hook just because of Twilight yes. in a weird way is that it's almost like, like, cause I remember when, uh, Cosmopolis, his first team up with David Cronenberg was still announced. Like that's when I was like him, that guy. And because at the time, all you knew him as was the sparkly vampire from Twilight that Chris and who dated Kristen Stewart in real life, you know, and they became a gigantic celebrity couple together. But then, you know, Cosmopolis actually came out and you were like, this is real fucking weird. And this guy's really fucking weird in it. And then I was kind of down for whatever he did. Now I know the, let's say decision on Cosmopolis critically is split uh, just between where that falls on in the Cronenberg ouvoir, let's say, uh, but regardless of that, it, it's just such a strange swing for a guy who is in that part. Of, like he could have done anything at that point in his career. And he was like, no, I want to work with the, the Canadian body horror King who then went on to make like history of violence and, you know, Eastern promises with Vigo. Like that instantly like raised an eyebrow to where you're like, okay, this is, this is weird. Yeah, he. Um, I, I like what you said. He he knows how to pick filmmakers. He seems genuinely interested um, in what's next for me as an actor. I heard him interviewed about like, the Lighthouse, and he's like, "Oh, like he even said it jokingly. He's like, oh, I, that's the one I get to fuck a mermaid.' Like he thinks in those terms of like, I'm gonna do some crazy shit, right? And I think the Batman is was on that same trajectory for him, where he was like. That's like the role, like for, uh, you know, for, for a male brooding, like hardcore actor, like. Well, and I think at that point too, if you look at it, even, even mathematically, like he's pretty much a decade, about a decade plus removed from his major franchise that, you know, Twilight. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, I have a decade now of weird experimentation under my belt. I can actually do one of these mainstream movies. But he's doing it again, and we'll get into this in the second part of the podcast where we talk exclusively about the Batman. But he was like, I'm going to do Matt Reeves as the Batman. I'm going to do the Batman from the guy who put concentration camp imagery in a fucking Planet of the Apes movie. You (laughs) know, like he, you know, because even Matt Reeves' pitch for the Batman when you read it, you're like, oh, that sounds weird. Like, I'm down for that. It's idiosyncratic, and it's totally driven by this one guy's vision for the character. Yep. And again, I want to save some of this, but like it is very Reeves is an auteur um, since the beginning. I mean, I, I I do think so. Like, I think he has a very specific tone all the way back to Cloverfield, which is now 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I think you look at you look at the Batman and it's like very much like uh, the Let Me In remake when he made Let Me In. It's that really just like foreboding thing and not like like Nolan does that, too. But Reeves has always had his own specific pitch. You know, I think that like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is like that perfect level of, um, again, of, of elevated genre where it's like you get your, you get your potatoes and your, you get your veggies too, um, like with your blockbuster. I, th- I think Reeves is more finchery than anything else. There's a technical, uh, precision to his movies and there's also like a texture that he applies to them. 
that feels very lived in. He, it's Fincher and Ridley Scott are the two that come yeah. to mind. Is he like he's a real creator of worlds? You know, that's become kind of a dirty term, especially post like MCU and stuff. Is world that building. it's all about world building, yada yada. But like Reeves seems more like a guy driven by the cinema of the seventies, where you watch that stuff and you go like when Gene Hackman's in a car chase and the French connection, like you can feel the interior of that shitty, you know, cop Brown cop cars. He's, you know, going against traffic or like in Clute with his Batman very much like shouts out, like you're in all of these kind of dingy hotel rooms and bright disco clubs and stuff. And it, it you, the threads and, the hairstyles and everything's just of a piece. Like it's, it's a snapshot of an era that is specifically designed, you know, in that case by like Alan and Alan Pakula, but like Reeves does the same thing. I don't know if I'm 100% on board with your estimation of him being an auteur. I think he's much more of a workman personally, Mm. but that's something we can uh, duke it out over when we get to the Batman. But first let's start, with him, uh, Robert Pattinson working with an anti-auteur and Francis Lawrence and Water for Elephants, Whoa. which I, I think is, here's the thing. I like this movie more than you do. I think it's perfectly passable for like the type of film that it is, but it also is kind of a weird Rosetta Stone in a weird way for Pattinson's career because you can watch it and you go, I see what you're doing here. And I see what studios are doing here because Water for Elephants is essentially almost like Titanic, but with a circus. And with Robert Pattinson being very much like the Leo mold of like, here's the next big teen tiger beat heartthrob that we're going to put in the center of this kind of epic love story. And it's like, he's fine in it. He definitely doesn't have that same electricity that Leo has, but I think he's still kind of figuring out who he is as an actor. Yeah. I, I really hated this movie. Um, I'm surprised. And, Cause I think it's perfectly competent. No. Yeah. And it is. I, but I like Lawrence a, a decent amount. Well, like, and I like Lawrence too. I love Constantine uh, besides the visual effects zombies in I am legend. I love the way he directed that film. Um, I like some of the stuff he did for Hunger Games as well. Yeah. Um, it, it, visually, he's awesome. And actually for TV, he he directed the pilot for C, the the um, Apple TV series. Oh, I didn't know he did yeah. that. And the, and the pilots, I mean, the show kind of sucks, but like the it's just so visually. Per- actually, a lot sure. of crossover with Reeves. They have some similar visual aesthetic stuff. They like both like to do. They both love like rich like rich greenery and things like. Anyway, but I the, as a film, this is somewhat. It's, it's I think it is well put together. Um, I think a big issue for me to even get in a little bit is there's zero chemistry between he and Reese Witherspoon. Like it's like they're in two different movies. It really, and they, and the age thing feels weird. It's feel like, I don't even know how their ages compare, but it feels like they're way apart. Also Christoph Waltz. It's, it's I, way different than Jack and Rose where Jack and Rose have the energy of two crazy kids locked on this boat and they, they get into all these misadventures and then one of the worst disasters in human history occurs around them. But it's like here, yeah, you're, you're kind of like Pattinson's doing this strapping old movie star thing. And Witherspoon doesn't seem to know what movie she's quite, she's trying to do the same. She's kind of trying to do the, 
um, blonde bombshell 1930s actress, you know? Um, but the, the performance is also like Christoph Waltz for me only works in Tarantino. Like he's the only guy who's ever figured out how to use this dude, him and Polanski, but and Polanski Car- yeah. to a, a lesser degree in carnage, but it's like, he sticks yeah. out like a sore thumb. And every, he's horrible. He's so this. bad. He's like, cause he does that, his over enunciation thing, which he thinks is being menacing. It's like, Dude, this is fucking horrible. And you can feel there's a lot of parts of this film that feel pulled again, like you said, from Titanic, where well, the, the structure is identical. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. literally Hal Holbrook wanders into an old or a new carnival, basically, talks with Paul Schneider, Paul Schneider. which is such a weird bit of casting, but I love it. But they, you know, have essentially the the Titanic talk. That what's the old lady? Who's the actress that plays? Oh, her? I forget. But we all know, like old the old Rose. lady comes back and, and and talks to Bill Paxton and his old crew while they're out salvaging the Titanic and blah blah blah. But it's like this is that structured where there's like some weird, uh, like flyer for an old event that's framed on Paul Schneider's wall and and how Holbrook is like, I remember this blah blah blah, and and Schneider's like, you were there, like this is one of the greatest disasters on in like circus history. And he's like, let me tell you all about it, boy. And then uh, you're obviously like, Oh, so you're Robert Pattinson. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the dissolve back to this great romance. And it's all building up to this massive quote unquote tragedy in circus history. There is some cool, uh, let's say character actor stuff floating around like Ken Forey. Oh yeah. Being in the movie. And then what's his name? Richard Brake is also in it, which is kind of cool. So, like, it has a neat look and feel to it. And, again, Francis Lawrence can shoot a movie, but it's, like, they haven't... Pattinson hasn't figured himself out yet, and you can tell they're, like, well, okay, so we have a romantic heartthrob guy. What do we do with him? We make him another romantic heartthrob. Because there's two movies this year that he's in that are both not good and kind of do the same thing with his image. The other one is Remember Me. Oh, God. The the big 9-11 twist movie that from Alan Coulter who directed a a huge chunk of the Sopranos and was integral in that uh, series becoming as big as it was just totally whiffs this fucking (laughs) I was gonna say whiff that's the word for it yeah it's It's just like horrible that I remember I saw this movie in theaters and I remember that ending occurring and looking at my ex-wife and went no fucking way dude (laughs) (laughs) it's so fucking tone deaf well it's interesting to think about because I I tried to watching these films pay as most actually the most attention to Pattinson, right? And just to see um, his acting style. And like, I think you, you, you're charting it well from, he was so uncomfortable in the twilight films. I mean, you could see in all those films, he's kind of like, Oh, like I don't want to fucking be here. Like the, it's not even his fault, but it's just like really fucking strange. And this one, like, yeah, he's trying for the heartthrob thing. He's much obviously better in this. It's a better role, but it, you compare his discomfort in this role to his complete comfort in Tenet. You see this actor who talk about another temple giant movie where he was comfortable going into that. But again, from the biggest auteur working on that level. Exactly. So he's still not, he's not doing like Dwayne Johnson working with the director of skyscraper. Sure. You know, or like the director of red notice some bullshit for Netflix. You know, he's doing like you said, but he's so but I mean in a, it, confident. I, I do think Leo is a pretty close comparison for him because of how choosy Leo is, even with who he works with, with doing stuff with Scorsese and Cameron and you know, like he very much saw the let's say 
superstar career path for himself, but new kind of also like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, which yep. is kind of an odd comparison, but hear me out is that it's almost like, okay, I have this skill set and I'm developing it. Who are the guys that will put me in either like challenging roles or at least build a challenging film around me that is pushing the boundaries of what cinema can do into the next level. And that's, that's what Arnold did. That's what Leo did. And that's kind of what Pattinson does is that only he's doing it on the art house level by going the a 24 route, you know? Yeah. And it really works for him. Um, but yeah, this overall water for elephants, you know, just not a good, just not a good watch for me. I'll never watch it again. I have heard the book is con- obviously considerably better because it's Carrie very- loves the book and she loves the movie too. There's like much she's more text- the perfect audience for this because like she even says like, Oh, it's very much like the book. Like they adapted the book for the movie competently. And people like my girlfriend are like, that's fucking cool. There's, there's great movie stars in this and this works. So it does its job yeah. again. You know, there's a, another movie that's a smaller one that I revisited for probably the first time since it first came out on streaming, which is called Bellamy, where he plays kind of a young grifter type who works his way up the the uh, power structures of so Paris with Uma Thurman, Christina Ricci, Kristen St- uh, Scott Thomas. Like, it's kind of a stacked cast, and he's pretty good in it. But this, along with the Cronenberg stuff, is the first glimpse of what, Pattinson would become as a tool for an actor, Mm. you know, and he becomes almost like a, there's this quote from uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. He talks about working with uh, Fincher on Zodiac and it's a negative comment because he obviously had a a very rough time time (laughs) making that movie for Fincher. Um, But he said, David likes to paint with people and sometimes it's really hard to be a color. Mm. And Pattinson seems to approach this in the opposite manner in that he seems to like to be a color for whatever the, the director is, is the, the great canvas that the director is trying to paint. Like he seems fine with it because in Bellamy, he's very much playing this kind of off kilter lecherous, like feels pulled almost from like a Milos Forman movie where he's smarmy and weird. Like you just know something's not right with this guy the whole time. And you're watching him become kind of a master manipulator. And then, so he fits into the, the, the wallpaper well with this movie, not a great movie or anything, but kind of an interesting one. But then we get to the two Cronenberg pictures with Cosmopolis and maps to the stars, which are both, very fucking strange films. They are, I mean, they're two of, two of my easily least favorite Cronenbergs, and I know I'm like the millionth person to say that. Um, I agree. I don't like Maps of the Stars. I actually love Cosmopolis. Like this last viewing of Cosmopolis, it jumped up for me even higher because like I think he's doing, I think Cronenberg is at his most literary with Cosmopolis to where like, it feels like a short story the entire time. It feels like this rambling Don DeLillo kind of pseudo narrative where it's all about these people acting as uh, almost symbols for different economic structures. And he kind of almost invents the crypto bro in real time in front of you. Cause it's all about currencies and losing money and how betting against uh, the market, betting against the market, how people become currency in their own right. 
how the digital age is moving forward. Like, I think Cronenberg's like ahead of the curve with this movie by like miles as he usually is. But again, yeah, if you're not into like actors just sitting in a weirdly green screened limo, just delivering pounds upon pounds of almost impenetrable dialogue. It's the, in my mind, it's the closest to counselor. Well, the counselor naked lunch. I was was going to say, yeah, they're, I mean, they're very, because Naked Lunch is trying to capture the Burroughs vibe, but also yeah. by way of Cronenberg. And I think this is trying to do the same thing for DeLillo. Yeah, I um, so I, don't, I haven't read much DeLillo, so I don't have that gateway in. Um, I totally agree with what he's doing. He's doing a very literary thing where it's a lot of pontification. I mean, like all the it's scenes. So, it's so willfully obtuse. Well, no, everything with Samantha Morton, it's like 20 minutes of her. Like, oh my really, God, I love that fucking scene. <laughs> where she's like really going down that rabbit hole. And so for me, she's I just perfect. Like her line delivery in that, where she's becoming like straight up robotic. Oh my God, I love it. Oh yeah, I mean like, I think he's doing something in this film. Like It's just whether or not you like it or not. And I don't. And, yeah. and you know Cronenberg's like, Top three favorite filmmaker for yeah. me. And I, one of the he's our guy. He's our guy. And so it's like. It's actually surprised we haven't done a Cronenberg movie yet. Well, yeah, we will eventually do a whole episode, I'm sure. We have to. But, <laughs> I mean, he's. There's there's stuff in I really like. Um, I really like the the day in the life of this guy, like the narrative. Uh, and I love it. It all revolves around a haircut the most. And they pointed out multiple times that the most, like, kind of trivial endeavor that he's embarking upon but also very human yeah it's very human it's weird it connects him back to his barber's hands and like the people and everything to his dad so you get it as the movie goes on but yeah it's it's so bizarre it it felt yeah it's like you said it's so it's so literary um but and pattinson's doing a very specific thing he's doing a very specific thing for both of cronenberg's movies is that he's adopting Honestly, the, the the 90s style of acting that Cronenberg would ask from a lot of his actors, specifically from stuff like Crash, to where you're watching them and they're such intellectual exercises that these actors have to almost adopt the idea of not being a person. Like, they have to be an idea. And I think Pattinson does that very well because he's so blank, he's so stoic, he's so cold... He's very close to James Spader in Crash, but without all of the the uh, quaalude-induced detachment, let's say. Yeah, it's interesting. You said blank, because when I was watching both this and then Maps of the Stars, you know, I was thinking about the male leads that Cronenberg likes, and he has had a lot of... I mean, back to on the lead character in Scanners. You know, you had this... The ultimate blank, you know, of this... Um, Who's a you know who's an official artist and then not even a good actor at all with the with the, with no. the dubbed voice but complete blank but you have there's a blankness to Woods at points point the, the well per- dead ringers D- dead ringers uh, the think- idea of one soul inhabiting two bodies because they're they're twins and how they become indecipher like indecipherable to the people around them like even in the way that they talk so from one another well and it's a credit it's a credit to Pattinson like you were saying is he. He gets the, I think specifically the tone of what the director's going for, and he fits yeah. into it perfectly. And one of the first, I think the first line or second line of dialogue in Cosmopolis is him talking to Kevin Durant when they're outside, like waiting to get into the, the limo. And it's oh, just, man, I love Kevin Durant. Oh, I love him so movie. much. Oh, he's just like, he's also totally tuned in 
to the frequency of what yeah. of what Cronenberg's doing. Again, he's got that that weird like New York thing going. Like, yeah, he's real cool in it. He's always like looking up to the sky. Like, he's always like just looking for danger, and and it feels kind of also like a play. Too. Oh yeah, like, because well, it is like you know one location most of the time, and again there also is a theme for. <laughs> I wonder if it's like on his uh, his contract where it's like as long as I, if Julia Benoist in this film, I get to fuck her. Right. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> which I mean is a great clause to have. If Julia I were an actor, Benoist still looking great. Man. Oh my god, yeah. But let's jump to the next big movie I think on the list here, and that's The Rover. And I think Fuck yeah. this becomes... Okay, so if we're talking about linchpins or, or movies acting as Rosetta Stones and what have you, this is both a Rosetta Stone for both Pattinson as a performer and A24 as a company. Because if you look in the, the line of projects that they produced, this is the real first, like, I guess you could make the argument for Spring Breakers as like mm. an elevated genre thing, but this is the first that feels like, okay, what the A24 formula would become. It's like, we have a hot new filmmaker in David Mashad. We have a subgenre that people are familiar with that he's going to tap into. And that's the post-apocalyptic Mad Max car uh, yeah. movie. Osploitation. He's making yeah. Osploitation. You know, it's it's true to his, you know, heritage as being an, an Australian filmmaker. But then we're going to put these great actors in it with Guy Pierce, And then we have Pattinson, who's already done some weird stuff here with, with David Cronenberg. He's going to continue doing his, like basically performing his evolution as an actor in front of you. But in this, he's specifically doing a thing where he's this mush-mouthed, maybe a little mentally slow uh, partner to Scoot McNary. He's his brother that's left behind during a robbery. And we don't know this the whole time, but he's picked up by Guy, Guy Pierce, who just wants his car back. Like, Guy Pierce is kind of like homeless dad. In, in Arrested Development, where I just waited for him to, like, scream the whole day. He's like, I just want my kids back! And he only here, it's, I just want my car back. And then you find out the ultimate twist as to why he wanted the car back, which I think is, I don't know, it doesn't 100% work for me, the whole dog thing at the end. But, like... It's kind of... Yeah, you're like, oh, I see where you're going for. It's a little on the nose, man. Yeah. But man, Pattinson's just like doing this mumbly, stuttery, like shaves its head, tries to look ugly, and is kind of beat up and dusty and dirty the whole movie. And it's it's pretty cool, but it would be a big signal as to like where his performance style would take him. And again, it's it's whatever the director wants me to do. It almost looks like he looks for guys who have idiosyncratic styles so that he can become that idiosyncratic color for them and be like, okay, cool. Well, if we're doing this, can I do this thing? And they're like, yeah, that would fit. Yeah, because he, this very much feels like the precursor to good time. This yeah, kind of role. exactly. Where it's, you know. It's, which it's, also is A24. Which, yes. And you have a, also a film about brothers. Uh, but now he's the other role. He's the, almost like the Benny Safdie role, um, who's, like you said, a little bit slower. But he's really kind of feral in this right. film, too. And he's very feral at point. Like he's smart in Good Time, but also has a feral quality to him. But this has that intensity. And the Good fact Time, that, uh, he, remi he reminds me most in Good Time of Dustin Hoffman in Straight Time. Dude, he I, has that sweaty, oh manic my God. intensity where he's just kind of... 
like he's one step ahead of everyone while also you're like you're doomed the whole time like there's no way that this works out well for you it's you because you're you know what you're doing, but you're also a fuck up. You know, like you're going to fuck this up, dude. Straight time is so fucking good. Great like movie. that that scene where he's talking to the the uh, parole officer. Yeah, it is just like they you, feel identical. You're like, oh my god, it's that very like he's the, he the thinks scene where he's Benny working. Safty is talking to the therapist early on or the caseworker, I guess, and he's asking him, and like he's so fucking combative the whole time. I didn't even think about it because I I was like, man, like there's obviously. Some Michael Mann shit going on in Good Time, um, but Michael Mann wrote the original screenplay for Straight Time, right? You know, and so there's 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 some world stuff and visual, you know. See, cues. Good Time to me is Ferrara, is Abel yeah. Ferrara like through and through. But there's, I think it's you know some of the score stuff is less Carpenter, more like '80s Man, like oh thief, sure, like the pumping thief well, score of the city. When I did the Q and A with the Safety Brothers for Good Time, I told them that uh, Daniel Lopatine, who's also goes. Uh, under the name uh, One O Tricks Point Never, um, he's kind of like Tangerine Dream, yes. but composing in the bowels of hell. They <laughs> thought that that was kind of funny. Fuck yeah, no, I I love it. Um, but Rover, Rover's again, just as a movie, it kicks so much fucking ass. Like, again, I don't, I agree, I don't like the ending, but and I don't, honestly don't always like a twenty four because sometimes that. It's like, like for me, I think it comes at night. It's like, bleh, you know, and, um, sometimes they're elevated stuff. It's like, all right, give me a little bit of meat here. Yeah. I know what you mean because like a lot of those early ones from a 24 were almost pure stylistic exercises and to a certain degree, like even spring breakers that all hinged upon whether or not you could, or your enjoyment hinged upon, I should say how much you can vibe with harmony Corinne's autofocus like like slimy digital thing that he's doing with these Disney princesses but again there's the A24 marketing like hook where like Pattinson was the that movie's equivalent of the Disney princess mm, you know because pretty boy yeah because they, it was like we're going to take the kid from twilight we're going to put him in the dirty osploitation car movie and it was like okay this is kind of cool man and he does that the same year that he does maps to the stars cuz they're both 2014 oh, and maps to the stars I don't want to spend a ton of time on cuz I know both of us are down on that one like I was hoping that this viewing would be the one where it clicked and I finally was like, oh, okay, I get it. Because i that's the only Cronenberg I actively dislike while watching it. That And I don't like Scanners that much either. Because that it's was just towards the bottom for yeah. me. But the rest, like, even through time, like something like Fast Company, you know? Oh, yeah. Like I've, I've rewatched multiple times and found stuff to really like about it. Uh, and stuff like Naked Lunch, which is taught like taking me a lot of viewing to fully unpack and kind of see where I am with those movies. But like, yeah, this Maps of the Stars just doesn't work for me. And honestly, I don't think Pattinson's very good in it. Like he's again in a limousine, which is a weird, uh, like connective tissue between the two films. But he's the driver here, and he's kind of detached, and he's. I don't know, like he's floating through because the whole thing is this Hollywood satire about the ghosts of Hollywood and the, the crimes that you commit and how they, they haunt you throughout time and or come back for you eventually. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, man, like nothing really is going on under the hood here. And it's Bruce Wagner who wrote it. Right. What was the show you wanted me to watch with uh, James Woods? 
Oh, um, Wild Palms. Yeah, because he did that. But I mean, he famously also did, you know, the third, the best Nightmare on Elm Street. Sure. You know, um, and it's, yeah, there's just, you haven't seen Wild Palms. That's a fucking, that's a trip and a half. Some great Catherine Bigelow TV directing there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, and, and with this film too, it feels like, I've already seen Mulholland Drive and it's a lot fucking better. And it's like, you're doing a modern kind of, again, the ghosts of Hollywood. Like you said, there's much more Mulholland Drive going on. This felt very thin. Maybe, maybe Pattinson also, we talked about how tuned in he was for the tone and vibe of Cosmopolis. This is a very unassured film from Cronenberg as well. That like, it's just it, not it, very it, good looking. The whole thing feels kind of off. Like no one knows what movie they're in, including Pattinson. The main kid is terrible. Oh God. He's yeah. Where so he's the doped out like child star. And that's he has no shoulders. Is he like deformed? It's like really bizarre. Ugh. All the ghost stuff is, is horrible. It looks like it was shot for $3 whenever the ghost things like show up and you're like, you're not even, it doesn't even feel like you're trying. Yeah. But also you want to talk about a movie where, you know, we, t- when we went through Magnolia, we talked about how, uh, let's say, Julianne Moore, if left to her own shrill. devices, can yeah spin off under her own shrill planet. This might be the ultimate example yep. of that because I think she's horrible in this movie. Like, it nails on a chalkboard to me. And John Cusack's just vaping through the whole fucking... This movie just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It was It's so funny. I thought the same thing watching. I said, oh, this is like her character who I don't like that much in Magnolia times a hundred. Yeah. And just like, just her, her, that's fever pitch the whole time of her just being... She's cruel. Like, she's up her own ass because she's the fading star and she's trying to play her mother? Yeah, her mother who she... The movie makes it seem like, like maybe she didn't molest her. Like she made it up, possibly. Yeah. But her mom, basically it's Munchausen stuff, that she was hurting her in the middle of the night. And then her mom died in a fire. And she wants to make a film that made her mother a cult star fame, which is not a bad idea for a plot. It's kind of cool. Like That could be an interesting, yeah. like, I could see an identity, like, persona thing going on. But, like, that's not the movie they tell. No. That's just, it goes off. And, dude, yeah, Cusack's just horrible in it. Even Mia Wazikowska is pretty flat. Yeah, you know, like and 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 she she and Pattinson are good together in Damsel. Like they they can play off each other well in other things. That's a um, neat little movie that I don't think is very good, but yeah. is a a great shot in the arm when Pattinson shows up in it with that banjo strapped across his back and yeah, because he's what what's his name like Freddie Alabaster or something, something like in it like and he's doing that whole weird like accent. He's like hey woo, it's like a Cohen character a little bit. Yeah, it seems like what's well, the the Zellner brothers right? Yeah. The guys who they're from Austin. They do a lot of stuff around. That's here. right. Yeah. So I mean, not a bad movie, but also not a great movie either. Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about 2015 has two strange art films that he was in. Uh, one of which I think mostly works and is at the very least incredibly interesting. And the other is just sort of a dud for me. The first one I want to talk about is what I believe you didn't watch, which was called Life. Where he plays a photographer for Life magazine at the beginning of James Dean's career. And he's looking for like a new subject. And he's basically like, Oh, I think this kid who's just been cast in East of Eden is going to be a huge star. He's going to revolutionize acting. I want to do basically like a, a photo profile of him of his home in Indiana. Right? Well, it becomes that to where that's first, a famous series because it's all about like two artists on the cusp of, of doing something with themselves a lot. Like we were talking off Mike. Um, and I was telling you about the movie cause I just watched it today. Uh, but the movie where 
End of the tour. Uh, yeah, Jason Siegel plays David Foster Wallace, and Jesse Eisenberg is the interviewer, kind of like comes to like profile him. I think for Rolling Stone mm-hmm. in that movie. But this does a very similar thing to where it's like, okay, here's this photographer trying to make a name for himself. Here's this young actor on the the cusp of like movie stardom, and like they bond obviously, and then it ends up going back to James Dean because it all revolves around that's where the famous photo shoot occurred is back in his hometown of Indiana. And that would be the last time Mm. that James Dean would return home to Indiana because he'd be dead seven months later. Yeah. And he's still on, he's waiting to hear back about, because the whole movie kicks off at a party at Nicholas Ray's house. And they have James Dean there trying, you know, his people, his publicist and agent and stuff want him there so that he can meet Nick Ray and get cast in Rebel Without a Cause. And he just doesn't want to be there. He's hanging out by the pool trying to be cool and shit. Well, the whole problem with this fucking movie is that Pattinson's pretty good doing this kind of like New York thing as the photographer. And he's really playing like kind of a young hustler type, like trying to make his way in this and define himself as an artist. But it's Dane fucking DeHaan playing James Dean. And he's doing this real mumbly, whispery thing that's a straight up like, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote kind of impersonation. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's, it's grating the entire time. And like, you see what the movie's going for and it, it looks great because it's Anton. It's another Australian director. I believe it's Anton Korjabin mm. who made control the joy oh, division film. Fuck yeah. And then shot a whole bunch of like music videos and was, a uh, photographer for like a lot of artists and bands and stuff. And you can see like this movie where it connects with him personally with his own like autobiography, but it just doesn't, it's kind of flat. It hits all the standard biopic tropes of like, Oh, these two guys become good friends and they pull things out of one another that neither one of them really knew. And by James Dean bringing him back to his roots, that's when they really find the soul of the actor. And you're like, ah, oh, this is all bullshit. <laughs> but it's good looking bullshit. And like Pattinson's not bad in it. But the other movie that comes out in 2015 is Brady Corbett's Childhood of a Leader, which is one of the strangest goddamn fucking things I've ever sat through. And I kind of love it. I'm halfway. I don't like Brady Corbett as an actor or as a filmmaker. I, Vox Lux is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I don't like Vox Lux, but when you... This movie gave me a greater appreciation for what Vox Lux was attempting, because I think they're both trying to do the same oh, exact absolutely. thing. The whole idea of like the, th- the tragedies or the cruelties, or, or in this case, unchecked cruelties that you're allowed to perform as a child lead to how you develop into an adult. Um, but this is the closest to like an American making a Lars von Trier movie. I think that's or Haneke too. Haneke's big too, but I'm thinking more about cause that Scott Walker score is so heightened and robust and like just pounding you the whole time. The way it looks like it has that very polished, slick, get like almost transition between like steady camera work and then handheld stuff and the dramatic scenes that Von Trier does the way it's broken up into weird chapters that you don't really know where it's going. The texture of the production design, the whole ominous like Euro horror thing that it's doing. It's pretty cool. And the fact that like, cause childhood of a leader is a Socrates 
oh, is short it? story, correct? About basically a man realizing his anti-Semitism at an early age and then developing into the world's next great uh, despot, let's say. Mm. Well, it's it's nice to look at. Um, I like Berenice Bayhill, like Liam Cunningham. I think, you know, Pattinson... <laughs> He's he's in this movie for like five minutes total. It's kind of funny we watched it, but he kind of has the the biggest, let's say, impact well, he's, as a character that you don't get the whole day. Because I do want to talk to you about this. I I had a theory about this movie. Or are we supposed to read it a certain way? Because it's all about this young kid who's in France under an American diplomat, while his dad is there to, to negotiate the Treaty of Versailles to yeah. end World War One. And how his dad is almost back-channeling, is it Hoover is um, the president at the time? No. Wilson. Wilson. That's it. Oh, yeah. And it's not it's not Socrates. It's Jean-Paul Sartre oh, okay. is who he's adapting, which, I mean, kind of tells you how pretentious this guy sees himself as a filmmaker, right? Oh, it's fucking pretentious yeah, as hell. Is, and so is Vox Lux. Oh, it's the, yeah. Because Vox Lux is all about a school shooting that later basically transforms a girl into a pop star, which is... Such a buzz. Anyway. And the worst Natalie Portman accent of all time. Oh, God. Her Brooklyn thing in it that. It just makes you want to just, just end wild. it all. It's so bad. But anyway, childhood of a leader. Uh, we, you know, his dad's American diplomat. He's uh, negotiating the Treaty of Versailles for Wilson. He's kind of trying to back channel him a little bit. And he thinks that the president's people. like dragging his feet. And it's how this kid gets away with being a little shit. And then also being like a, a sexual like deviant almost at a very young age by grabbing his you know his tutor's tit, and then how he ends up even attacking his mother by then. But it's like these these unchecked aggressions or the the idea of like privilege run amok to where it's like if you never discipline this kid, if you never discipline this kid, if you never discipline this kid, he's going to finally grow up to be Hitler, which. Here's the question I have for you. So, like you said, Pattinson, which is something he would do in a lot of these movies, is that he's almost always playing second fiddle, except for, like, Cosmopolis and Water for Elephants and even Remember Me. Like, But a lot of these like movies that he's making early on, like Maps of the Stars, The Rover, this... Uh, he's he's playing a side character, or like we just said with Damsel, like he just wanders in the movie, and, and this one's a exits. bit part too. I mean, like this it, is a very in bit terms part of screen time because he's he's another diplomat who's essentially playing pool and acting as an advisor to uh, the kid's dad, you know, over Brandon. They're old friends. One night, they're old friends, but he keeps popping in and out, and clearly has a relationship with the mom. Because even the, there's the whole scene where uh, the dad, Liam Cunningham, catches them together where he's just at the house and kind of comes out. So with the end, because the big shock ending of this movie is that it jumps forward in time and now the kid is just, he's basically Hitler. Yeah, their or version. Mussolini yeah. or some... Alternate reality. Some alternate reality fascist dictator. But it's Pattinson playing the dictator with a shaved head and this beard, looking straight up like fucking Rasputin. When his eye, he's got like twitchy eye. He looks absolutely insane. Yeah, eye. But like, are we supposed to infer that Liam Cunningham was never this kid's dad to begin with? Hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So I read. I read up on it after. I was just like, I just want to make sure I'm not crazy here, like because I was like, I was just. 
it kind of took me by surprise. But yes, it's it's another thing of this kid also his history was unclear. He kind of was, he was off on the wrong foot from the beginning. Right. Um, and, and there's like other hints besides Pattinson coming to see Berenice Bejo. He asks about the boy and he says, next time I'd like to see him. Right. Which is like, I want to okay, see him. I thought I it was deliberate and like, yeah, straight up casting Pattinson as the kid in the future. I yeah. was like, okay now, but it's also kind of like, who cares? It's this weird. It's like a reveal where it's like, and what's the whole like nature versus nurture thing? How he was an illegitimate product to begin with, and yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're stretching. Some, some yeah, very weird <laughs> waters here. But I like the shock ending, and I like where it's going for it. I like how bombastic and weird and and. Uh, portentous it is the entire the time. The spinning shot of the 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 light, the skylight. Oh god! In, in his like in his main building of his empire is fucking awesome. It's so meticulously it's so like cool. produced and put together. But yeah, if you're not into shit like this, because I mean, like Corbett, even as like an actor, like I really like him in Haneke's. Uh, funny people, funny, funny games. Sorry, funny game. Um, re- funny not funny people. people. <laughs> yeah, Michael Haneke's funny people. Dude, I would watch Adam that Sandler. movie. I would, I would totally watch that. Movie. Sorry, his funny game remake. Yeah, his yeah. remake with him and um, what's his name? Michael Pitt, the real weirdo, who's great. Uh, Tim Roth and Naomi Tim Watts. Tim Roth, Naomi Ro- Watts. Like, I actually prefer it to oh. the original production. But anyway, I, he was in that, and he was also in Simon Killer, where he's the American in Paris who is a budding sociopathy. My point here is what I'm going for is that Corbett's never been like, he's a pretty boy. He's almost Pattinson, like a, a bizarro world, dark dimension, Robert Pattinson, who never ascended to the same heights and has been fine working in like even more, uh, niche and idiosyncratic kind of art house crowds or art house arenas because he could have very easily been Scott uh, Eastwood type to where it's like he could be in one of these or like walking that that sort of path as being just a pretty boy movie star. And he's not like he does some real whether you like it or not, he's chosen a, a distinct path for his career that he's decided to walk for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because I he was pretty good in Mysterious Skin. Yeah, that's the other one. I mean, that's yeah. another talk about another like, you know, art house kind of trajectory working with Gregor Rocky. Yeah. One of the you great know, outsider weird, like the ultimate, yeah. you know, um, in terms of American, I fucking love doom patrol a lot. Um, I do not. I love that movie. Mysterious skin might be the only one of his. I, I totally like because doom generation, kaboom. I liked kaboom is cool. Um, there's another one totally fucked up or whatever, I didn't see that one. but there's a few of his that I've, I always watched his stuff. Or is it nowhere? Is the other one mm. that's because some of them are hard to find now because they didn't make the jump from VHS and stuff. But like I remember renting a bunch of his from the video store and I would always watch them because even though I didn't like Doom Generation, I still was like, oh, this guy's he's doing a thing. I don't know if it's my and thing, but I'm, but I'm always going to give him a ch- yeah. Well, that. that's why I rented it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and she looks great in it. Oh, my God. But Mysterious Skin is like, man. That movie fucking rules, and he's and he's good in that. And I, I think the he's thing getting I just fisted. Oh yeah, I can't get I can't <laughs> I can't get over. Um, I, I think when I watch a film like this, this is really getting off the subject of Pattinson. But anyway, I 
I see exactly what he's doing. And I'm like, oh, you're this guy who's worked with people like Haneke and you're going for a thing. Like you're, you're very much aping another person's style because he won best director at Venice. Right. For this best, best day, best director and also best debut film. Is it Ve- was it Venice or Berlin? Berlin. It was one of them. It was Berlin. Yeah. Both in both. This feels more like a Berlin movie. Yeah. Um, and I just like I don't think there's much under his stuff. But again, Pattinson like totally brings it. But he does he does a similar thing uh for Werner Herzog uh with Queen of the Desert too, mm. where he plays T. E. Lawrence. He literally plays the the famous Peter O'Toole character, but it's his version of it but again he's playing a a second or even third fiddle in that in this big ensemble around Nicole Kidman but I think Queen of the Desert's sort of interesting again not a good movie it's I don't think Herzog's produced many good narrative features in the last decade or so most of them kind of stink salt and fire (laughs) oh well I interviewed him for that That, I uh, I enjoyed that movie no not a good no no not a good movie um but my point being, again, that he's like he's actively like sought out. Like, I want to work with Werner Herzog. You know, yeah. that's kind of cool. And I want to play T. E. Lawrence for Werner Herzog. But and I think that that performance in Queen of the Desert sort of sets the stage in an abstract way for his his take in Tenet because he's doing that same kind of fey, foppish, mm. British thing. Only in Tenet, he's doing way more of like a Denholm Elliott character, which I always thought was kind of cool. But revisiting, I, I only watched parts of Queen of the Desert because I, I found it kind of interminable. Yeah. But I just, and I just wanted to get a feel of like, okay, what's Pattinson doing here? And it is, it's interesting, but again, the movies around him is not very good. But then the the movie around him that is fucking awesome and is an epic adventure that I think Queen of the Desert is kind of going for is Lost City of Z, which I had never seen before this round of movies that we're doing for this podcast. And dude, this is my favorite thing that I've watched in years. Like it's so fucking good or one of my favorite things I should say. But I, I, I had always heard how good it was. But then I sat down, just smoked a little weed and just zoned out and was like, oh, wow, this is, I mean, talk about a movie that's maybe more Herzog than Herzog. I, because it felt very Garrett Wrath of God. Right. And Apocalypse Now, obviously. I watched. Fitzcarraldo to a certain degree. Very much. I watched it, it was like on a Saturday night and it was like one o'clock and I said, oh, I was just trying to get more of movies done. And so I was like, okay, I'll just start it. I watched like 30 minutes. I watched the whole fucking thing. I stayed up till like 3.30 in the morning. It's hypnotic. It's really like, and, and I don't like Charlie Hunnam. And he, even he's good in this. He's terrific. Like he's, I, I agree with you. Like <laughs> I don't like He's him. so rarely good in movies. <laughs> Although here's the, here, here's the thing I do think is interesting about Charlie Hunnam is that when he's actually allowed to use his own accent yes. and be British, he's way better than when he's trying to be an American and do You're like right. the mumbling thing. It's like you and McGregor. Yeah. Because well, I think that Hunnam, I don't particularly love this movie, but I think he's pretty good in it as I, I like him in Crimson Peak. A good amount for yeah. Del Toro. And I think he's okay in Pacific Rim, but again, he's doing the American thing instead of allowed to be, you know, be British. Well, and actually one of his better roles, I know you're not a big guy Richie fan, but like the gentleman, because he has his thick British accent. Yeah. That, he's awesome in that. He and Colin Farrell are both just like, oh, we're gonna have a good time working with Guy Richie. Let's let's have a let's fuck around. Well, there's a dude that's sort of comparable to Hunnam, just in terms of like I Farrell to me is a god. 
but like they have a similar energy to where like when you let Farrell just kind of loose and let him be himself especially with his Irish brogue and stuff like he just feels a lot more now like in Farrell Bruges. in well yeah in Bruges is the one I was totally going for in Seven Psychopaths is when he gets to just kind of be this this low life asshole with this this Irish accent like dude he's so fucking good I love him to death I actually watched we'll get into this with the Batman I watched a whole interview with him about his dialect coach he said, uh, well, yeah. he had one dialect coach for like 10 years and she helps him like get to the core and he was on the films they watched to prep for the Penguin. Anyway, but I... I want to hear him talk for hours about whatever he's doing in Miami Vice. Oh, God, yes. Um, Hola, Chica. <laughs> but every time I have Mojito, I have to say, I'm a fiend for Mojitos. I'm a fiend for Mojitos. Everybody does. That movie changed the face of Mojito drinking for life. Tupacati Mojitos at a gin and tonic. Um, there's... I know a place. Cuba? <laughs> Well, he's like, no, Havana, Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Lost City of Z. Um, This this movie inspired me to text you that we are definitely doing a James Gray episode in the future because between this and Ad Astra and We Own the Night, like... His movies just... You want to talk about a dude who who does his own version of elevated genre, but I think does elevated genre better than anybody else because, like, you know, it's this... In this, the movie turns in for, like, 15 minutes to, like, an Italian cannibal movie, but, like, the artiest version of that. And then it's, like, a big, like, Werner Herzog, like, historical epic. And then it's this sad character study about this guy and his son and, like, how he missed him and ends up dooming him along with himself because of this obsession that he can't give up. Then that amazing fucking final shot with his wife, who still thinks his... his, uh, her husband and son could still be out there and they're like, man, it's been like months now. They're dead. And she walks out that fucking mirror shot where she walks out into the jungle out of that lawyer's office. Well, because the jungle starts to materialize behind the lawyer. Yeah. As they're talking, it goes into the jungle. I'm like, what? A, it's just a flat out fucking masterpiece. But at the same time, it's incredibly thrilling. He, he oh, gives you so all good. of the Jewel of the Nile, Indiana Jones thrills that you would want for Robert E. Howard. Yeah, two-fisted shit. Yeah, really great. And also, John Huston, too. There, there's a bunch of Houston in this movie and Treasure of the Sierra Madre and just that, that big, again, two-fisted manly adventure thing. And one of the coolest parts of the movie is, again... Pattinson's playing a buddy part who you watch his relationship develop with Charlie Hunnam's driven explorer to where he goes from like guy who's basically sent from the National Geographic Society. He's a drunk. He's a drunk, but he's sent there to spy on him and make sure that he doesn't fuck it up the whole time. And then they become like, you know, almost pure allies until he finally can't. He's able to give up the the ghost where Charlie Hunnam is not and is eventually doomed. I, I I was watching this. I felt the same as you, but I was like, why didn't I watch this the minute it fucking came yeah. out? And my so my friend Elise like this on is the one, big screen, the biggest screen possible because it's so much movie. Well, supposedly the book is just phenomenal too. Okay, so my friend because it's the same guy who wrote Killers of the Flower Moon, I believe. Okay, which is you know. Um, and I remember my friend Elise had it on her shelves. I was like, what's that? It was, it was a huge bestseller. And I was like, how's that? And she was like, oh, it's like the coolest fucking book you ever read. And I never got to it. 
and the movie came out and I was like, oh, maybe I should read the book first. I had all these reasons for not getting it. And also a lot of times on Amazon, <laughs> put, they put their movies on Amazon Prime and I'm like, eh, I'll get to it. There's just that sense of it not being a real movie. Well, it's the yeah. Netflix effect, yes. right? Where it's like once it's on the digital shelf and you know it's there forever, it chops not only your anticipation, but your desire to just run out and see it right away almost in half. Like stuff like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre like landing on Netflix and me like staying up to watch it the moment it drops is so rare because of that idea of the digital shelf that I just know it's there forever. It's not going out of print. It's not like I'm not gonna have to track it down later or watch a shitty version on YouTube. It's just always going to be on fucking Netflix. So that really dulls your anticipation for things. Yep. It really, really and definitely did for this one. And I, I loved, um, what Pattinson brought too, because one of the things we should say about him as a performer, like one of the things you're kind of getting, I think of him playing these bit roles, he doesn't ape for the camera to try to take attention. There's a thing about certain actors when they take smaller roles, they want you to know that they're there. Right. And for instance, like, they're so the guys who can't abide by the Corman rule of like everybody should be a character. That means you are a character and you're not the main character. Yes. Well, and then, you know, Steve McQueen is famously known for being a steam stealer. Like back in exactly. 2007, he played with his gun in the back just to take from Yul Brenner and from everybody else. Right. And what's great about this is like Pattinson totally disappears into the role he's supposed to be in in this movie, like in the like the tapestry of this beautiful film. But Man, that movie where they or that scene where they go to war together and Charlie Hunnam gives that amazing, like rousing speech and nobody's like moved by it. And Pattinson's like, let's go and fuck him up. Like, yeah, well, he's like, so great. Yeah. He's like, let's go fucking kill those Germans. You yeah. Know? And also that scene is that whole the whole World War One thing. It's awesome. Like better than anything Sam Mendes could do. And um, calm down. I hate that fucking movie anyway. Um, but he brings a real like, humanity to this film because we, you know, we're going to get to a good time where he brings this really manic energy. And this is like, he's like, almost a calming presence. Like from the beginning of like this guy, you can rely on like one of my favorite scenes also with Pattinson in this film, we show, like you said, the, the kind of um, way they become allies is they're all, it's the first trip out into the jungle and they're going to fucking die. Like they, if they're out of food, like they, they, they're lost before they find the lost city for the first time. And he's like, um, Pattinson's like passed out on this raft and everyone else is fighting over the food and someone's basically going for Hunnam and Pattinson just like pulls the gun half asleep just pulls the gun he, like he he's still listening and he's like what a badass fucking move like he's he's just so solid and again he plays a very similar it feels instinctive in a way yeah yeah he he it's also interesting he we're not really getting into Tenet too much obviously Tenet keeps coming up which is fine but it's another buddy role, though. Actually, that's pretty comparable to the. the he he's the heart. He's the heart of Tenet. Yeah. I mean, he's the he's the beating heart. I never like, thought about it that way until you just said that. Because he's the real humanity in a very, especially for a, a Nolan film, very all the machinations of time travel. You have this guy who's the core, and like the, well, and the how the whole hook of the movie ends up revolving around him. Yeah, I mean the fact that he probably is the kid. Yeah, you know, and the whole thing too of like we, it's very much like Merlin going back through time. You know, it's like we're seeing him at his death. When, you know, this is the end for him where he's going to go basically right. die. And it's that wonderful moment of like, I, I just love his line reading of we get up to some stuff. It's like, oh, man, it's so like heartfelt. And he can just bring. He's wonderful. He can just, he's so good because he's doing the Tom Hardy thing from Inception. But 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 with more heart. like he is he is because Hardy's not the heart of of Inception at all. Like no, he's, he's, he's just cool charming. Yeah. yeah, he's the cool. This is like a little bit of both. 
where he's the cool plus like, oh, I really like this guy. Well, he and Washington have great chemistry oh, too yeah. the entire time. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so we're, we should probably save a lot more Lost City thoughts because I have plenty of them because yeah. I want to do a whole James Gray episode in the future. I think feel like that's essential. I'm, I'm in, yeah. So let's jump to my favorite movie on the entire list uh, with good time. Um, this for me is still the Pattinson performance to date in his career. I don't think he's achieved anything quite like this yet. Um, he gets to be the center of every scene and bring this lightning bolt energy to this just straight up dirt bag tale of a run all night. I got to get my brother out of jail thing, but man, I fucking, I hadn't watched this movie in a couple of years because I watched it a bunch when it first came out. That and Uncut Gems. But revisiting it like 20 minutes in, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's right. This movie's just drugs. Like, I don't need to do cocaine tonight. <laughs> I have a good time. Dude, I love this movie so fucking much. Um, I haven't, I didn't see it for a couple of years, too. I literally finished it the moment you were walking in to come record. So I kind of wanted to end. Masterpiece. Like, like, just finish this right before to have it fresh. Um, and I love the Safties. Again, a guy who not only matches the tone of what they're going for, but is the guy giving the energy to the film, like you said. Like he is the spinning engine that drives this film. And the fact that he is up to match their filmmaking intensity and, and keep and everybody is in this film, but I think of the scene in particular. Well, when, it's like when, Adam Sandler and Gems. Like when they get the actor that they want for these two movies in particular, um, they have to be like the roles themselves are so keyed up that if they don't pick the exact right person and really work with them to get that level of energy, the moment their cap, their cameras start rolling, like that whole movie's not going to work. No. I mean, if they had even 1% less than what they needed, it would, it would fall apart. But I think of the scene with he and Jennifer Jason Lee at the, um, the, uh, the, what is it? The bail bondsman. bail bondsman scene. And the way that it's like her on the phone with her mom screaming him trying to like, okay, just get the money out of the, get the money out of the safe. Then it felt kind of very similar to the scenes in like Lewin Davis where it's like a guy who's always behind the eight ball. Like he, he just can't get out of his own fucking way. Yeah. Um, and like you were saying earlier when you walked in and talk about a character who is a tornado that when he comes to your life, you're fucked. Like the young, the young 16 year old girl, like she's complete collateral damage, you know, where it's like, he comes through is just using anybody he can. And he's charming as fuck. You know, you see, and he's handsome and he's works his way past all these people. And then, you know, just leaves her to get arrested and probably sent to juvie, you know, cause she's at the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't think, Maybe I don't not. think anything would actually happen to her because he basically took, her car or her grandma's car, I believe is who the, the character, their relationship is. And she could always claim like that. He kidnapped her. Like, you know? Yeah. But, but regardless of the logistics, it feels like he hasn't, he has no regard for well, her. And that's what the whole movie's about. Right. Is that it's, it is supposed to be this twisted take on male white privilege. And now he's able to navigate this whole underworld and, and honestly, not just an underworld, because like you said, like he goes from like Jennifer Jason Lee's weird, like high rise dilettante who she's going to pay like 10 grand to just get his brother. Who's played by Benny Safdie. Who's, um, 
mentally handicapped and thrown in Rikers after they tried to uh, rob a bank. He's trying to get uh, Benny out of uh, out of prison because he knows, like, if he's left in there, he's just gonna get fucking murdered the entire time. So he's raising all this, uh, trying to find ways to raise this cash. And General Jason Leeds is just like, yeah, sure, I'll put ten grand on my credit card. And it's not until her mom turns her credit card off that she's not allowed to basically do it. But he navigates in and out of these people's houses, like hospitals, like talking to a cop. Oh man. Um, going in, yeah, this, this black woman's house and then straight up making out with her daughter. And also in the scene where, uh, you can decode the movie a little bit is when he and the, the 16 year old black girl watch cops together or the cops knock off. He drops the line. I'll turn this off. I don't want to see them justify this. And that's the whole movie. It's literally how he justifies using people time and time again to get uh, to the his end goal, which is just to get his brother out of prison, who he fucked over in the first place because his brother doesn't know any better about coming along with Connie and robbing these banks and basically being his muscle, like his imposing figure next to him. That's all he wants him to do. But like, it's of mice and men. Oh man, it's, yeah, <laughs> it, it really up. is. It's Lenny. Yeah, you're right. I never thought. I was about watching it that, that tonight. Way. I was like, Jesus, this is the rabbits. But that's what makes the end with Benny's character so sad. When you watch over the end credits, him make his first decisions for himself, like for possibly the first time in his entire life, because I think that's what the whole. Like even interpretation of that that memory that he has of his grandma and the frying pan and throwing it is like, well, did all of that happen because Connie's energy was in the room or did it happen because that he freaked out? Like by the end scene, you go, I think everything that bad that happened was because Connie was there. And that the fact that Pattinson can make you believe that the entire time with his intensity, it's just what a fucking performance, man. Well, like you said, I mean, you have these two films that are very similar from filmmakers. That's an uncut gems and two performances that really toe the line well of, of still being charming because yeah. you still want to spend time with these people. You're like, wow, like how does this guy going to get you? I like watching him navigate these different worlds. I think especially the cop scene of the way he also gets in for me. He's like a good private eye. Right. Like, cause he sits there, he's talking to the orderly when he's like down in the, uh, like the commissary of the, of the, uh, hospital. And he's like, what are all these cops doing here? And they're like, oh, I don't know. It's like, hey, what floor is what, that? What floor, what floor is that? And he's like, oh, it should be up on six. Because, oh, bullshit. And you could see it's My like, my dad's on there. They, yeah, he shouldn't be sick. there. They shouldn't be with prisoners. And you're just sitting there like, oh, yeah, he's deducing how to get to his brother. And it's like really. And it's similar with, um, you know, with the Adam Sandler character in Uncut Gems. He's doing the more kind of like businessman, like working sides against each other, you know, again, of like. Uh, robbing from Peter to pay Paul kind exactly. of thing constantly. And this one is more in the moment. The It's even more heightened, I think, than Uncut Gem because it's all in one night. It's just that like unending and that Pattinson can can not just be, because he's a piece of shit, but goddamn, you, just want, you, you can't take your eyes off of him. And his physicality, which he brings to the Batman, which we'll talk about later too, yeah. is his physicality has always been one of his gifts because he's kind of gangly. 
Like he has this kind of gang. He always and has. He's very odd looking in this movie. Like even though he's still good looking, but like he looks like a dirt bag. Yes. Well, well, cause he bleaches his hair yeah. and now he looks even more just like, Oh, he's walking around in that, that worn out echo hoodie. Yeah. Like, oversized like dickies and just looks like a dude who hasn't taken a shower in a few days and but at the same time is still like able to convince like everybody from like jennifer jason lee to this 16 year old girl to to do whatever he wants like he bends them to his will like the whole the moment buddy duris enters the movie who he steals the entire movie from me like pattinson's the best thing buddy man that, that whole sequence where he talks about getting out of jail and it becomes a mini movie about him going, taking acid, like fucking some chick in some weird flop house, stealing a bottle of Sprite that contains nothing but pure acid, going through a haunted house. Going to an arcade. Going to an arcade, blacking out and then waking up and Pattinson breaks him out of the hospital and he doesn't know where the fuck he is. Dude, that guy is so goddamn good. Between that and uh, heaven knows what, because uh, he's the heroin oh, addict's yeah. uh, boyfriend in that too, who has his own uh, issues with the law. That even when I again when I interviewed the Safdie brothers, I believe they said when Good Time was filming, he had to basically like hide in in between scenes and stuff because like the the law was looking for him because he was his mom had brought him up on charges of like fraud because he was forging checks and shit. He was a real addict. He'd been in and out of Rikers the entire time. Like that's why like heaven knows what, like he was cast for that because he was perfect. He lived that role, but man, he's, he just brings like Pattinson is like that zap of energy. And then buddy Duris that you'd like basically, start off the night with before you start drinking and then buddy duris is the guy who shows up to the party later and it's like hey man i just scored like you know eight bag of coke you want to do something in the bathroom and you're all of a sudden like i'm up all night now we're having fun we're jumping off buildings and shit this is crazy <laughs> yeah it's um he he's great and all the performance i mean jennifer jason lee is who's always fucking great like oh yeah totally. you want to talk about somebody who's shrill though she's just screeching through this movie but this is like good shrill and it's perfect for the movie versus like the, like well and that's the safty style right like that's the thing about uncut gems that i know didn't sit like the people who don't like it are like oh it's the movie where they all just scream at each other for two hours <laughs> and ten minutes not untrue is <laughs> untrue <laughs> I mean, Good Time does hit the same kind of fever pitch, like everything's manic, everything's on the line, and we're 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 at an eleven the entire time, and even in the ways that we talk to each other. But I mean, what's funny is that Buddy Duras, for all of his insanity in this movie too, does get like one of the more tender moments with Pattinson, where he's talking to him. Mm. He's just like. Yo, bro, I'm just fucking trying to, like, relate with you. Like, we're fucked. Like, I'm a person. You're a person. We all done shit. I'm not here to fucking judge you. And Pattinson is still like, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm better than you. Yeah, I'm better than you. Like, you're nothing. He's like, what the fuck, bro? But his entire delivery the whole time, I'm like, this man, like, just put him in the fucking Louvre. Yes. But after good time, we really only have one more movie to talk about before we get to the Batman and that's the lighthouse another like ultimate Pattinson performance for me because man you want to talk about a dude who buys 100% into the weirdo frequency that his director is operating on Robert Eggers picked the right guy he 
I saw this at Fantastic Fest, and it was me the, too. It was the the secret screening, and right. Um, I remember there have been there have been inklings of okay, this this might be Lighthouse because it had already premiered. I think at another film fest, and yeah. And that's what I wanted more than anything to play. Cause I like, I was like, I like the witch, but I also, like, I was like, okay, I love nautical horror and I love Lovecraft shit. And like William Hope Hodgson, I was like, give, I was like that, this is the best Lovecraft adaptation that isn't actually Lovecraft. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's straight up pulling out a lot of that. What's cool is the Dagon shadow of Innsmouth like type y- stuff. Yeah. And the, the problem with Lovecraft is it's kind of like Carpenter and that people just reference it, but they don't get it. You know what I mean? It's and like they just gets they it. just call names out, like, I'm going to say Cthulhu or the old one. It's like, that's not enough. Or like, I'm going to have a Carpenter score and put some blue light. That's not Carpenter. And like, this is like, no, this gets the the core of, of Lovecraft, an, which is insanity. Insanity has always been insanity, the core. Insanity, well, an unknowable evil. Unknowable evil, because you're looking at, and it's it's the idea of, I mean, every story that, that Lovecraft wrote, there's one scene where it's like, I couldn't. I looked at its cyclopean nature, and I could not describe. What yeah, it was I saw. An indes- indescribable, slimy evil that that yeah. came from the bowels of another world. That, like the Shaga, the Shaga describe. Thing. Yeah. yeah, in um, at the Mountains of Madness, like exactly. that, where it's just this like bulbous thing. Like, I don't know, but like they both. Well, it's like the the. Uh, beasts that rise up from the void at the end of in the mouth of madness yeah. where like she's even, the the passage from the book that styles is reading from when those things are emerging from that gateway to hell like that's the that's pretty close to what every of those passages you just described from lovecraft are like yes yeah and it's this one captures that that vibe very well and What's cool, one of the things we didn't also mention about Pattinson is we kind of mentioned the dialect stuff of, of um, Colin Farrell. But, like, there's a whole running thing with Pattinson letting you do weird voices. Like, he, yeah. like for instance... He's not quite Tom Hardy. He, but in this, he's doing New England. He's doing New England. But the, in, the, in the, the King... Um, oh, he's the dolphin, he's, right? Yeah. The, uh, and he does... Like, cackly French... When he, and for that Dang. one, he showed up. He didn't tell anyone because I'm going to show it again. He's almost like That's a demonic Pepe Le Pew the entire time. Like, it's really weird. And you could see he's like, I'm going to have some fun with this. Yeah. And what I like. Well, him, he does. Um, What's that other one that he was just in the Southern Gothic? Same thing. Um, um, Where he's the he's the preacher. Again, again with uh, Tom Holland. Devil all the time. Yes, that's it. The devil all the time. So, yeah, devil all the time. Like it. I don't like that movie that much, but Pattinson is. I like it a lot. I like how the like, keyed up the whole tone is, how it is like ultimate Southern Gothic. But like, <laughs> if you were writing that novel while you were just like hoovering meth the entire time, you're like, like, cause everyone's doing a cartoon character in that. Like Jason Clark's. Yeah. Really slimy. Riley Kehoe. Yeah. Riley Kehoe. But Pattinson, it, it, another one, kind of like what you said with the king, like he just shows up in this bit part and is like, let me do some fucking biodigital jazz for you real quick. And he's screaming in that foghorn leghorn like preachers. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. Or the scene where he shows up, the first time he shows up and it's like the potluck and he's like yeah. shoves his hand into like the dessert that they brought. And it sucks it off. And he's, he's just like... like <laughs> And he's like really going for it, <sighs> and um, but no, like Lighthouse. I Me, mean, I like I love that New England accent. He he and um, 
Defoe. He and Defoe both. What's really cool about working... Talk about with, a dude doing an accent. Well, because Eggers, like, I watched a long interview with him about and they talked about it at the premiere, you know... He's a language guy too. Like he yeah. loves to do. He did all this research on like old texts and old like correspondence between people like this to really get like the way they spoke to each other. And Hark! Yeah, I mean, because you need like I, I watched it um, with a couple of friends. I was in Houston and they hadn't seen it, so I got to watch this for the podcast again. And they both loved it. But they, they, can we put subtitles on? I said absolutely because it, it's really like well, opaque. especially Defoe's so croaky the entire yeah. time. You don't like me, lobster. I was a man come to want to be a wiki. <laughs> or he's like, on the run. Uh, or, on uh, the run. Oh, trim she were. Yeah, and... Man don't drink must have a reason. They're so... Like, they both play... For a two-man show, basically. I remember, like, Pattinson's... Um, Rager saying, it's like, it's two guys fighting inside a giant phallus. Like, that's... Yeah. The homoerotic story about two men fighting a giant... Like, that's the story. And, like, again, Pattinson... The he, ultimate roommate movie about knowing that having a roommate sucks. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's it's. I prefer it to the witch. Um, I love the world. Uh, I love. I, I just, don't like the witch that much. I, don't, I really don't either. Yeah. But I see where he was. I could see the talent there. Oh uh, yeah, I, I saw that it's fantastic. So immaculately too. designed. It just isn't for me. I saw it the same. I saw it a, the right back to back with Green Room at that fantastic fest. I think I did too. They were back to back, and I was like, I mean, that's a good double feature for like, holy shit, like, talk about two bangers, you know. But like, yeah, the witch, both A24 too. Mm-hmm. But this one, I think Edgar is really, I can say he really comes into his own. I think the language, I think the plotting, the performances he gets too, like the, the, the pitch of insanity, and like, talk about similarly, the kind of what um, Corbett was trying to do with, with the music in, um, Childhood yeah. of a leader, you know, that well, kind of even from like the air horn stuff in the beginning just puts you on edge the yes. entire time. It's like the rhythm of the world they're in. Like you, like you hear the air horn, you hear the wind and it's this constant. The sound design in this is so ridiculous. Even watching it on like, I barely got out of bed today <laughs> after our, our marathon drinking night last night at a tiki bar, which was quite enjoyable. It was quite <laughs> awesome, but I, neither one of us or Carrie moved a whole lot today as we all texted each other, but we watched the lighthouse in bed. And even on like, you know, our 24, 25 inch, you know, bedroom TV. TV in our bedroom. Like I was still like, Oh my God, like this movie's just blaring at me. And it's every frame is just so perfectly like put together and designed and like it's textured and weird and has mermaid vaginas. And like, Oh man, it's fucking strange. I think it has one of my favorite shots of the decade, which is the nightmare scene where, Basically, Defoe is naked and he becomes the lighthouse and he's oh standing God. and his eyes are it's shining so down. Amazing. And it's like, I would put that on my fucking wall. It's beautiful, like just fucked up, like Hieronymus Bosch painting. That's so great. Sense. Glutes on Defoe, too. Dude, Defoe's been in, Defoe's like Guy Pierce. These two sinewy guys who've been in yeah. great shape their whole fucking. My friend Greg in college is the same way. Some back on him, yeah, you know it's just like, just not a big guy. Big ass, though. But he's always been like cut and got a big old booty on him. Yeah. Got the, not like my Carl's buns though. No, <laughs> fantastic dumper. <laughs> Look at the dumper as, on as Simon head. Abrams once said. <laughs> do you want to get to the Batman now? I'd love to. Let's do it.
talking about the Batman and Robert Pattinson. And joining us is a very special guest calling in all the way from Port Aransas, Texas. It is one of the founding fathers of Secret Handshake, the one, the only, the very large dicked, Cody Bouchard! Hey, Cody. Hiya, boys. I'm back. It's good to have you, man. Yeah, good to be back. Yeah, we figured there was no discussion with, about the Batman that uh, could happen on this podcast that didn't include you. So I'm glad that, you know, you could slot us into your, your very busy schedule. And it's great to see your amazingly uh, handsome face. But let's let's start with this, um, because I think this is a pertinent question for you two more than it is for me. Uh, what does the Batman mean to you guys? Like, how did you guys come to become fans of the character? And what's your relationship with uh, good old Bruce Wayne leading up to Matt Reeves as the Batman? Um, Cody, I can start if you want. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. for me, um, I saw Burton's Batman when I was five in the theater, uh, summer 89. But I was already a fan before that. Um, I remember... When I was sick, my parents would get me like comic books from uh, Hook's Drugstore, and it would be detective comics uh, written by uh, Denny O'Neill and drawn by Norm Brayfogle, who's like my favorite Batman artist. So I was like already into like th that era of Batman, um, and I was obsessed. I, I saw the movie in the theater, which I was way too young to see at five. I would not show it to my nephew now. It, that movie's dark as fuck, um, and. Then we got it on VHS and I watched it probably 300 times. It's the movie I've watched the most of any film. Um, and then it just continued like uh, Batman the Animated Series, I think for our generation, like definitely helped bring in a whole extra level of fandom because, you know, a couple of times a week or I guess once a week at that point, these awesome like noir stories uh, from Bruce Tim and, and Paul Dini. Um and then I just kind of continued from there where anytime a film came out, it was a big fucking deal. Like I was, just, you know, especially like when Batman Begins came out, I was just counting the seconds. Like remember the, the trailer for that came out in summer of 04. It came out with the village, I think. And I remember it was like a super teaser. It was just like, there's, you didn't even see Batman in it. And I was just beside myself with excitement. Is that um, one of those ones that was just the logo? If I remember right. Uh, I mean, just, there's, and, there's, like, there's dialogue. There's oh, no. footage. So the one for Dark Knight was just you didn't all it was was the Joker's voice. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. But for for uh, Batman Begins, it was like all the stuff of him walking up into the Himalayas. Um, and uh, but between that, I've just been a, a avid comic reader, like all of Frank Miller's stuff and Scott Snyder's, and so Batman's. But the film specifically have always been, as you notice when this one came out, just like a whole level of excitement that I don't really show for any other thing in my life it's even horror, even horror films um because it is a special occasion versus the over marvel is just like every other day is a marvel film batman feels like an event um, seriously yeah so cody I'll, I'll i'll pass it to you uh real similar to yours uh i saw batman 89 in the theater i was also five they even had um a large you know batmobile replica like in the lobby or like outside oh, yeah. the place that you could take a picture next to and stuff so got to see it there i don't really remember reading like i don't know how outside of just like batman being in the zeitgeist i don't have any recollection of specific injection of batman into my life via like comics or anything before that but then i mean i don't remember much from before i was five anyway but 
Um, yeah, and then very similar, Martin, the Batman the Animated Series was like a huge part of my cartoon watching uh, in my growing up developmental days. So Batman's always had a hold there. Uh, I liked Batman Begins a lot. Um, I felt that it didn't fully flush out the character, and but I loved the suit and that big, thick, like Black Panther neck that it had when he's oh, sitting yeah. on, the, on the stair railing. He's so imposing. And then, of course, Dark Knight just blew every other superhero movie in history out of the water with Heath Ledger's performance. Uh, Batman Rises, not not as great. Um, but yeah, and I was super stoked about Pattinson's and I really liked his portrayal. And yeah. You guys have both conspicuously skipped over the Schumacher movies. You <laughs> I completely them. ignored them. I liked them a lot growing up, but that's just because that was the uh, the intellectual level that I was at. I mean, it was still a Batman movie. Like I just I bought in everything. I was a big fan of Jim Carrey, especially for uh, Batman Forever. Um, I didn't have the history of the <clears throat> of the Riddler character to go off of to know the the, the drastic bastardization that was happening of it. Two Face as well. See, my thing is, I never saw the shoemaker. Like, I don't think Batman and Robin is good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these newfound apologists that that movie all all of a sudden has. But like Batman Forever, I always liked because it reminded me of the TV series, the '60s one. Right. And that was always on in our house all the time. And it seemed to be approximating something much more garish and colorful and goofy, frankly, and, and wasn't supposed to be tethered uh, to any semblance of reality whatsoever. I like that about it, too. I really liked that it kept kind of the uh, the Burton aesthetic of the really gothic Gotham yeah. and like the huge uh, monoliths of statues of, of bodies and things and then uh, the neon lights and all. I The aesthetic was still really awesome. I my, love the scene with the neon gang in the yeah. alley. Oh like, yeah, when the, the ice cool skates. Scenes. Yeah, is uh, that's that's part four. But yeah, yeah. Um, but three has the ne- that neon gang is like is and Don the Dragon Wilson is the main gang member. Um, and I love that whole sequence. But yeah, I think I think Batman and Rob Batman and Forever, like you were saying, Cody is kind of like a a bridge between like Burton's and then like Batman and Robin is his own completely different crazy thing. But he's, by he's way, got I a watched... Batman credit card. Yeah. And, or it's like, and, but, but forever, like the action's good and like Carrie and um, Tommy Lee Jones are both good. Like it works pretty well for like what it is. Um, and Schumacher is, a, is like a, a, the, the king of like creating an atmosphere in a world and like it has the feel of like if Batman took place in Flatliners with like these, like you said these giant statues, you know, like that's that's always been Schumacher's thing. So, do you guys like Batman Returns? I love that fucking movie. Me too. Uh, it's it's a great Penguin Catwoman movie. Batman's in it for like five minutes. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, it does possibly have the least amount of Batman of any Batman movie. But the also, same time, Batman's a straight stone cold murderer in that movie. <laughs> I kind of like that though, and I like all the the crazy clown armies with like bazookas and yeah. shit. Fucking uh, Christopher Walken as Max Shrek is pretty fun, and Devito's just doing this really gross, slithery like monster thing. I don't know. I feel like I know this is probably going to be a, an odd comparison and one that. <laughs> Obviously, we've done a whole episode on, and neither one of you looks too favor- favorably upon. But it reminds me a lot of Halloween 2 from Rob Zombie in terms of how it feels 100% like, okay, we, we've gotten all the origin stuff out of the way. 
this is now the movie that I always kind of wanted to make. I kind of wanted to make it gothy and, and pervy and kind of goofy, but also really dark and violent and fucked up. And like, that feels the most like to me when, when we talk about the Burton uh, Batman, that's the one that feels like the, 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 the movie Burton always wanted to make out of the character. That was that's I think he's even been quoted saying that because like, oh has he when they made the first one he was under the thumb of these producers like he was not he didn't have the cred that he has now you know and he had you know a couple of films under his belt including Beetlejuice but he was having it was it was kind of like similar to like um well he had Coppola, that scissor hands by that point right you no know, scissor, scissor hands is after that's nice oh is it yeah um he uh had a similar thing with like Coppola, you know, on, um, on Godfather one, where he's all these producers, like kind of didn't want him there. He was like fighting against it. And like returns, like after Batman was the enormous hit that it was they're, like, do whatever the fuck you want to. Do you, think like, they re- do you think they recycled Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman costume for Edward Scissorhands? What's well, a full, it's a full on. Yeah. It's a full on Burton kind of image. But something you said, Cody, made me think of something you said, like Batman's barely in the movie. And one of the things I've heard said about this new Batman film, which I agree with, is, is that it's the most Batman. It, oh, it's yeah. The, it's, least, the, it's least the least Bruce Batman? Wayne. Well, no, no. Mo- the most Batman, but not overshown by the villains. And it also connects what you're saying, Cody, about the best thing about Dark Knight is Heath Ledger. Yeah. Like, that's it. And it's a good story, but, like, it's also not a Batman movie. Like, Nolan never made a Batman movie. He was making Nolan movies, and Batman happened to be there. That's my belief. Yeah. Gotham and was just Chicago the whole time. It exactly. Gotham, Gotham didn't even feel like a it was a complete either. afterthought, except for the the Narrows and Batman Begins. The only per, honestly, right. the only filmer ne- next to Burton is Reeves in terms of creating like this. This is not supposed to be the real world. This is not supposed to be New York or Chicago, like you said, Cody. And also the fact that Batman is the main character. Like he's completely overshadowed by the like he's so ineffectual in Dark Knight. It's hilarious. Like he is just getting like this mop to the floor by the amazing performance and the story of, of the Joker and what he's doing. Yeah. Well, and the thing to your point, uh, Martin about Gotham being a character in the city, like with the other projects that Reeves has been developing with like Gotham PD and now, which is now transformed into Arkham since he, he revealed that uh, interview either today or yesterday yeah. uh, that that project's not happening anymore, but it almost sounds like he views Batman as his way in to do something similar to like the wire to where you, like you can actually explore these different facets of Gotham and what makes them tick and what makes them work and, and, and create a living city around Batman. That's even different from like Burton's because Burton's is still that very, uh hyper uh, stylized like cartoon version of it where this is like to me the the closest comparison in like atmosphere for the batman for me is blade runner and seven for sure yeah 100 percent. well everyone's been talking i read like four articles today everyone's like talking about seven and fincher specifically seven i mean like the scene of when they finally go into it's It's just but but like that scene in particular though like them looking through the notebooks is like right out of seven i mean they just totally like it is like scene cut and put in this movie so finch uh reeves isn't even trying to hide it it's zodiac Um, with the ciphers and the uh the like the riddler symbol looks like very much like a zodiac symbol yeah, very, very much so. Um, well, then it transforms into Fight Club in the last 30 minutes <laughs> where the Riddler goes from being John Doe to Tyler Durden. 
Yeah, yeah. He's just gonna burn. He's gonna blow up the institutions and bring them to their knees. He's gonna unmask. Well, it's, it's interesting because you said Gotham as a character and as a city. Because one of the things that didn't for me work about some of the Nolan stuff was that he wanted to make this realistic thing, especially with like Dark Knight, where it's like, in the end, it's like, look, this guy's dressed like a fucking bat. Like you can't explain that away because the rest of the world doesn't match that. The, the the film we saw with the Batman and the Burton Batman is Batman is of a piece with the feel of the Gotham that's created, right? You believe that a guy in this atmosphere would dress up as a bat because everyone else is already kind of playing this comic book kind of world um, versus like you get to Dark Knight and he's all tacked out and cool. It's like he should just be like a vigilante without like a fucking bat, a bat hood on. You well, know. he starts out that way. He just has like a uh, like a, like a do rag or something on when he's still working out the climbing equipment. The first time he talks to Gordon, well, in the first one, but I'm talking about Dark Knight, the, the oh, second okay. one yeah, in yeah, particular, yeah. where it's like it's so trying to go realistic and not romanticism but all like modernist Michael Mann shit that I always felt like that doesn't make sense that Batman should even be here. You know, well, I, um, I think that's the thing that is really cool about uh, Reeves's uh, the Batman is that. Even from a story uh, telling standpoint, he enters with the whole idea of year two. Like this has already been yeah. going on yeah. for a little while before we even catch up with this storyline. So like people know, you know, the bat signals out there out there. He obviously has his alliance with Gordon already set up and, you know, people know that he's out there like he prowls the night. That's what that whole like Rorschach slash Travis Bickle bit of journaling that yeah. this version of the Batman does to kind of introduce us to this world. But I guess also thing... supposed to juxtapose him to the Riddler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Being that like these are two directions you can go with being an orphan and having this, uh, you know, childhood trauma. Well, being a vigilante because I, it's almost becomes a story of dueling Rorschachs, right? Yeah. And well, it's R- like Riddler what... definitely view, uh, views himself as a vigilante in this aspect. He's just going at it from a different, uh, you know, different. Well, it's like what, 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 uh, bits of yourself where are you willing to compromise uh, in that pursuit of, of what they call quote unquote justice. Um, but the thing that I really like about the year two setup is that it plays on everything that we just talked about. The fact that we have a built in relationship to this character. Yeah. There's X amount of movies. There's X amount of comic books. There's X amount of TV series that we've already sat through. Like, you know, the mythos, you yeah. know that Gordon's the only one that believes in Batman. You know that the streets are overrun by crime. You know uh, that this guy is Bruce Wayne and operates in a cave and is kind of like figuring himself out. And now we are kind of in the shoes of the normal people and the cops and stuff because you get to process that idea of like this guy's showing up to crime scenes now. Like people know that he's around and like – not everybody's kind of cool with that. Like they treat him sort of like a freak. That's one thing I, I love really love about. Go ahead, Martin. Yeah, you first. You first. It's one thing I really love about this movie is how much time that it takes to openly and clearly show you that this is a guy head to toe dressed in a you know in a a makeshift bat suit with military tactical stuff that's been improvised, and he's just standing in a room full of normal cops, and all the cops are just look. It's it's the first time where I feel like the the mythos has been taken out of the Batman, and you're really just sat to think with the fact that this is a normal human. Well, normal. This is a non superpowered human being in a costume with his own agenda. Who's really awesome. smart? Like he's almost like Bat Columbo. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's real great. Off of that, Cody, I agree with you, Cody. Like that scene, I love. I think the scene that really is Matt Reeves saying, "This is my movie," and like, "This is my Batman." Is that scene of the first crime scene because we've never seen detective full-on detective Batman. We haven't seen it, and we and some of my favorite things from the comics and from some of the cartoons is you know, Gordon and Batman at a crime scene together talking and like trying to like, you know, almost like Sherlock Holmes and and Watson kind of solving the mystery. And this scene too, like you said, Cody, what's cool is like the awkwardness of like how he kind of walks back into the, the darkness. Like he's kind of stands out of the way because it's just like, and everyone kind of doesn't want to bump into him because he's kind of freaky and weird. But I think it also does toe the line well between the realism, but also of him becoming something more than human like especially the opening scene of like i love the the journaling of like they think i'm in the darkness but they don't realize i am the darkness it's so rorschach you know but it's like the idea of they're all looking into these dark these dark alleyways thinking he's there which is where his power lies right and that that, right. that when he walks slowly out of that um staircase to beat up the clown face dudes like oh my god that long slow footsteps in like the <laughs> echoing it's like just <laughs> Oh, and the art and the Arkham Asylum style action, Cody. I mean, the yeah. full on like it's they, they got they got the fighting right. They just got so much right in this movie. It's also a well, good detail that they're they're in year two, so he hasn't got all this figured out. He's still, uh, you know, figuring out the finite details, especially with group fighting. Like he's not yeah. unstoppable, <laughs> un, untouchable force. Like he's taking legs, he's getting hit, he's getting surrounded. He's still ultimately winning the situation, but he's not a perfect, untouchable force like he's been depicted before i love that i totally agree well and if you think about it too um this isn't an unfamiliar uh storytelling technique uh for reeves because he kind of does the same thing with his first planet of the apes movies is because it it allows you to fill in the blanks that happens between uh, rise of the planet of the apes yeah. and dawn of the planet of the apes in that the apocalypse happened, this virus spread out and, and wiped everybody out. And now we're kind of in ruins, but like there's a huge period of time that's not accounted for there that he picks up on. It does the same sort of mythic storytelling where it's like, you get it. You've seen planet of the apes. You've at least seen the one before this. So like you <laughs> the, can the fill one? in and figure out what's happening. You know, I just, I just picked up on the fact this is the second time Reeves has picked up on, a Burton property kind of yeah exactly that's interesting yeah because he he knows how to do um like the macro and the micro too like he has this like very broad awesome like mythic kind of storytelling but he knows how to get down to the detail and I think that like we were talking earlier Jacob about I mean a big part of I think what makes Reeves Reeves is like the production design the, the people that he hires to do the production design it's so detailed like my favorite shot we saw it twice together and both times the same shot came i think i elbowed you is the shot where he's sending selena in to undercover with the uh um the contact in the ear with the contact lens right and it cuts to the wide shot and it's and it's the uh the l train going by and it's um, and like and it's just the l train and the computer screens and it's just like yes please give me this all fucking day well, I know that he's worked with the same uh, cinematographer and production designer pretty much since the Apes movies. Because I know I was listening to an interview that he did on The Big Picture where he talked about when he took over uh, the Apes franchise because he originally wasn't supposed to direct that. 
Um, but he took that over and the script was kind of already there, but he was doing like his own revisions on it. But like everybody was already hired pretty much. So he went to the production designer and he went to these people and was like, okay, well, I'm doing my touches on it. How do we make this as textured as possible? So every project since then, he's written it that way to where he's always consulting um, his production designer. He's always uh, consulting like Greg Frazier with how they're going to shoot it. Um, and it's James uh, Chinland who does the yeah. production design on the Batman, but he's always working with him because that's the big thing that I love about this movie is so that uh, a, a very specific texture is represented. All of his worlds, you can feel them, you can touch them, you can smell them, like they exist around you. And that's what he wanted to do with Gotham and with this Batman is like kind of immerse you in this world. I think he gets there because of that extra step that he puts into even like the the earliest uh stages of conception you can straight up smell this movie it's so wet yeah. and dark like you know there's just like dirt and mildew just everywhere <laughs> well it's funny because if you watch i watched begins again before the movie and like the look which, of wh- the, uh, wait but, but before which viewing your first or your third before my first viewing okay um but uh the narrows, like the end, the where the end action scenes take place and begins, it looks very much like like Reeves's um, very lived in um, Gotham City. Because again, it wasn't just like let's just go shoot in Chicago, like you said, Cody. Um, another thing, yeah, I think Frazier you just can't overstate. I didn't realize that. I didn't think Frazier shot the the Apes movies. It might just be the production it's designer. Just the, yeah, it's it's Chinlin because Frazier shot Rogue One and then Dune. Yeah, um, I thought and, it was a dude guy. I was gonna ask that. And he shot. Didn't Frazier shoot Zero Dark Thirty too? I, he might have. I, I for the one I believe I know, so. Because like Rogue no, One he, is, like, is the prettiest like Star Wars film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's another scene that's really cool. I was actually reading an article today, and I, I I'm such an idiot I didn't even notice. Oh it no, he did. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, for Reeves, what I'm thinking of is Frazier shot. Let me in. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. That's um, where they're they're. Uh, relationship began the scene um the the awesome car chase scene um that he totally references christine and they were talking he like straight up said he was oh yeah yeah they built so chinlin and the team built an electric front of the batmobile just for the fire and like the furnace building inside like that's not the full car it's just the front of the car for that one shot um and the blue flame tingles up and down my body like i got goosebumps when when the flame yeah when the light lit up in the back when that thing fired up in the the roar of the engine i was like oh fuck me here we go dude because yeah because it goes from that and then when when the penguin thinks he's gotten them and he busts through i got you i got you (laughs) is straight up from christine of the car on fire you know like it's just this unstoppable monster of a car and the the car is just roaring at you like a freight train it's so fucking cool well, apparently they built that entire club, too, that the Penguin no and Carmine Falcone, like, that was a whole set that they shot inside. The, the Iceberg? Yeah, the Iceberg Lounge. And then, yeah. what was, is it 44 Below is the yeah, second that, club? That, that's the club in the club. I heard the same um, interview you did, Jacob, and they were talking that they wanted it to feel, like, integrated into the city. So it's actually a part of the footing of the bridge that it's right, right yeah. underneath. That's fucking cool, man. But again, these are all these weird little details that make Gotham a character for the first time in, in a real 
like lived in white. I also feel like this is another great example of a rule that Martin and I have talked about a lot about uh, lately in that it's the old Corman rule of that every uh, like role in the film has to be a real character and thus played by like a real actor because like you have Totoro do going full Totoro as Carmine Falcone. You have uh, what's his name? Sarsgaard coming in oh, and, yeah, and being the DA for like it, a couple of scenes. Wasn't anywhere in the building. I was shocked when I saw his face. He's yeah, so like, slimy. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, just <laughs> real gnarly. Did you know he's um, married to Maggie Gyllenhaal? Not anymore. They divorced. Oh, really? Oh, are they divorced? But yeah. either way, seeing him show up was just like, oh, shit, it's that guy. But, like, that's what they do with every single role. Like, Colin Farrell just completely disappearing under mounds of latex as the penguin. Which do they – they call him the penguin at one point, right? Yeah, I know he introduces himself as Oz, but like I couldn't remember the, the first Batman time he's the first the time he's mentioned a Batman. They they say like Oz Cobblepot, and then Batman I think says the Penguin. Yeah, that's a, that's what I thought too. But I mean this this whole world, even from a human standpoint, is so fleshed out that it's just amazing every time a new character shows up. Like fucking Totoro just never takes those sunglasses off. He's amazing, king shit. One of the cool things like. Off what you're saying is that an issue with a lot of especially like Marvel films and, and other superhero films is let's have more and more villains, right? It's like like some of the Spider-Man they're known for having like 18 villains, like Spider-Man 3, it's like way too much going on, right? Or Dark Knight Rises. Or dark, yeah, you know, and the new one has too many Spider-Man. Exactly. But this one is interesting because I'm gonna disagree. It has the perfect number of Spider-Man, but uh, uh but this one is cool. <laughs> Because it knows that every character doesn't have to be a main character. Like, and so you can have very similar, one of their big inspirations for this is The Long Halloween by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. And it's yeah. it's the, the you know, the, the Halloween murders and it's going down that rabbit hole. But you can have characters kind of come and go and that's fine. You don't have to have the Penguin be so integral to the plot that it's like he's a big bad guy who is also part of the plan to destroy the city. Like, that's just, that's just the Riddler. You know, yeah. other people are contingent to that plan, but it's so cool that we can get all of Gotham and not feel like that we have to have, we can have, we can have Penguin without, and have a cool Penguin car chase. And it doesn't have to be a main bad guy to contend with at some point in the film, like Spider-Man 3. It's like, I gotta fight them. an origin story. It's like, these guys just kind of play their parts within the infrastructure of the city as it's already set up. And obviously by the end, like, they hint at the fact that like Penguin's going to ascend to a different level of power. You you even have a Joker introduction with Barry uh, Keoghan in the the uh, Arkham Asylum at the end. So like they hint at this stuff, but like yeah, the real uh, I believe arc that we we get out of anybody is Selena Kyle and Catwoman. Yeah, because Zoe Kravitz like owns this fucking movie. She she is the shining light in the dark hallway of this film. Yeah, I, I think she's I – mean, I've always liked her, but she is, like, brings that perfect, like, sultriness to the Selena Kyle role, but without it being, like, comical. And also just, like, a lot of pathos, too, of just, like, her – like, you have all – and all these – the whole film is about orphans, right? Like, the three main characters are all these people with damaged pasts who are all trying to reckon with, like, how do I go on? Do I get – is it is – it, you know, I vengeance is also the theme, right? It's like, well, vengeance basically solved my – 
or justice. Or just what, what, what defines right. justice? It's, it's, it's the evolution of vengeance to justice in in Pattinson's eyes. Because at the end, the other Riddler guy says, "I'm vengeance." So Pattinson has to reckon with that and be like, "Maybe I'm going about this slightly the wrong way." Yeah, it actually, you're right. It actually is cool because I, I the the simple the simple imagery of at the beginning where he scares the Asian man after saving his life. Pattinson he's created this vengeance character that Bruce Wayne, that he's ter- This guy is terrified of him as well. I see. I see. And, and so the end though, is he saves the day and the woman won't let go of his arm while she's being airlifted. It's like, he has changed now. You're saying Cody, he's gone from a place of pure vengeance to also like hope. He needs to also be a symbol of hope. Like I love the image of like the overhead image of him with the red, um, the flare and, yeah. and showing them out of the darkness. It's just like, it's fucking Joseph Campbell mythic shit. It's like, to, yes, to, fucking please. You were saying too, though, of him uh, inadvertently being vengeance and scaring people with not trying to right before he leads everyone out with the flare, he's holding it and they're yep. kind of stuck on the structures and they at first won't come to him. He has to like until, reach out until and his, take until one his person. Kid. Well, the yeah. kid comes to him. Who's him. It's his own child. Like that kid is him. Right. I love that. You know, Potentially Robin. <laughs> well, it's also sort of like, if you think about like how emo this movie is, like it's sort of like the Batman shares the same trajectory as My Chemical Romance. I was going like, to say, I think they took like, uh, Bruce Wayne's look like right off the front album like cover. They, of they go from making like Revenge. this horror themed like punk music to by the end, they're basically making glam rock. And they're just, they, they embrace their inner light, man. You know, Batman is Gerard Way in this movie. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I read an article that was along those same He's lines, not okay. too. But it's, what's really, I mean, to talk about Pattinson, too, I fucking love him as Batman. Um, You said that, you know, it's the least amount of Bruce Wayne we get in any Batman movie ever, for sure. I mean, compared to, like, Batman Begins is, like, all Bruce Wayne and a little bit of Batman. This is, like, the opposite. And what's cool is, like, not just Pattinson, but the design of his suit, like the detail of the mask. It's not just this weird looking plastic mask. It's like leather with stitching. Yeah. It has the it has the contours of a face. And his performance, what he's able to do with his eyes, very similar almost to like dread in dread, where you just have the bottom fa- part of like it's just uh, the jaw. The jaw, but it's like what he's able to do with his face and because he's in the mask so much that we haven't seen other Batman films before. It's like, he's fucking Batman. There's nuance, his eyes, like, um, I think he, again, his physicality, like he, like he's thick in that he's, while well, he's a skinny guy, they made him look quite thick in that, in that bat in suit, suit, especially the, yeah. the torso. My friend is like, yeah, he's got a really thick torso. Partly it's the, the wide angle lenses. My friend made a point about that. It makes him look just thicker, you know, but I love the, like the physicality of, the way he walks. I mean, we were talking earlier, Jacob and I, just about his physicality in other films. That's always been one of his gifts too. So he knows how to use his body for certain kinds of roles. Um, he can be spindly, and this one he's very powerful. He's very like. he's very European in that regard. He has a physicality about him that reminded me a lot of uh, Vincent London, uh, yeah, from, like Titan and stuff. To where like he could just change the way that his face and his body moved ever so slightly. And all of a sudden he's a totally different person. Like Pattinson does the same thing. It's this, like you said, the gangly lanky uh, soulfulness that he owns the entire time. Now I do, I I do have one question for you guys as we get more into spoiler territory, that something that occurred to me that I, 
since this movie's aping seven so much and other Fincher stuff, do you think we should have known ahead of time that Paul Dano was the Riddler? I, I was thinking it in the abstract of how it might have been a cool homage to Seven if they just never revealed it. And like how when Kevin Spacey shows up as John Doe, you're like, oh, shit, he's in this. I know who that guy is. Like Paul Dano shows up and it also makes the softness of his face kind of work uh, in his favor as an actor. Because all of a sudden it goes from like, here's this masked serial killer showing and sending out all of these horrific transmissions. And then when they bust him in that coffee shop and it just reveals that it's Paul Dano you have kind of a, a double-edged su surprise there as you go oh shit it's Paul Dano and at the same time you go wait it's that guy under the mask it's almost like machine and eight millimeter to a certain degree a hundred percent it would be nice I mean obviously it would never they never could have done it in today's day and age um, yeah we would have known that, that Spacey was in seven if that came out today you yeah, know right um but I I would I would love that I would love that surprise um, something you off of seven something you brought up and another friend brought up too to me was that this being a, a Hollywood film and being a blockbuster, like it doesn't go all the way. Um, like no. you made the point of the the that they probably should have killed if this well, had been if they would have killed the you know the well here's uh, my the whole mayor. theory behind it is that okay, so we have it's a very finchery bit of fan fiction set inside the Batman world where he's basically borrowing bits and pieces of David Fincher movies that we love, along with a lot of other stuff, too. There's a lot of 70s crime movies in this, uh, particularly Prince of the City, which we just found out was going to be kind of like the main influence on that Gothic PD show that, or Gotham PD show that's not going to happen anymore. But also you saw like there's a straight up clue reference in this movie when they find out how the one prostitute uh, was killed and you actually listen to her murder on tape while she's being strangled. That's straight up the climax of Clute where you hear that entire tape and Jane Fonda has to listen to it. I was like, holy shit, I can't believe he actually smuggled this inside of this Batman film. But I threw this up on Twitter uh, earlier today and got a little bit of a response over it, is that my theory with this is that if you're doing Fincher fan fiction, particularly Seven, you got to have the head in the box ending. And that's where this movie kind of pussies out a little bit is that it feels like it's building towards the head in the box ending where we find out that Gwyneth's actually dead. That's John uh, Doe's last victim. It's because it diverts from seven and goes to Fight Club and brings well, it, down it goes, Well, here's the thing, though. But even Fight Club, like the courage of its own fucking finchery convictions, because it ends with a 9-11 type event where they take out all of the world's. Uh, credit unions, basically, with these Club, massive, yeah. like, uh, bombs. Here he does, you know, the Riddler turns into Tyler Durden. We find out that he's recruiting essentially this entire army of guys who are fed up with how the justice system, system is working. The cops are broken. All cops are bastards, et cetera, et cetera. They've essentially met on, like, a Reddit chat form, which makes it kind of all well, right it's it's all a, it's all a comments on like the the QAnon culture and the the, the Second Amendment people. What what are their what are their what's that thing called? I, what do they do? I think there's some of that in there, but I also think it goes back to the theme of like what's the difference bet between radicalism to where Batman's radicalized to do good and these guys are radicalized towards the notion of anarchy. It's taking 
the idea of like pro- these progressive notions of like defund the police, um, you know, stop basically corruption in city hall, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like these guys turn to actually acts of terrorism uh, to take these institutions down, much like Tyler Durden did with Fight Club. My thing is, if this movie had like the head in the box ending for this movie is essentially like the the progressive candidate getting murdered, the bombs going off and flooding Gotham City and more or less like taking it entirely out. And that Batman isn't sure what he's even there to protect anymore. Like Gotham, the character itself is almost assassinated and we're left with like, well, what the fuck does the next movie even bring to us? I just don't think that it has the the balls to really carry through with that level of nihilism. Well, cause like Colin, Colin Farrell's, uh, Colin Farrell's penguin is getting an R rated either sequel or spinoff or show or something. I forget it's, what it's HBO as well. Yeah. They're doing oh, is that going to be an HBO thing too. So it's going to be like, they're calling it his Scarface. So again, the De Palma stuff, you know, that he's going to do like the rise to power and so much De Palma in this movie too. Yeah. Hey, did anybody it, get the sense that he was doing kind of a De Niro impersonation for oh, yeah. Pot? Oh yeah, he's doing. He's almost doing like De Niro at the end of Raging Bull impersonation. Like it's almost like if Jake LaMotta was also like um, his Al Capone from Untouchables. If you merge those two together, like Farrell gets to do an impersonation of it. It's really sleazy and, and goofy and funny. The, the I feel like that he randomly knows Spanish. <laughs> Well, it's just like funny oh, a scene yeah. where he's like, he's like, "What are you showing me? Come on in!" Just like, <laughs> hey. uh, oh, well, I mean, and I feel like because Reeves in that one interview that me and Cody heard even talked about like not only '70s movies but like stuff stretching back to like making this movie for Warner Brothers, who were like the kings of the original like gangster picture in like the '30s and stuff, and how like his Oz is play, paying tribute to that team in some degree. Yeah, and, it's it, the. The one problem I'd say I have with this film, um, it's just not perfect. It, like, so I think what you're saying, like, it does kind of pull the punch of what it's working toward with that plot. I also think that the the middle act where the film does sag a little bit um, when it goes on the mystery of getting to Falcone is anyone who reads the comics is like knows that Falcone runs the city, right? So you have this thing, this this known mystery. It's kind of like Bucky and Winter Soldier. It's like, oh my god, Bucky's Winter Soldier. It's like go on Google. That's yeah. the name of the movie. It's a, Check no out surprise. the last 30 years of comics. Yeah, exactly. It's very similar to this where it was like, when they were like, wait, but he is the, the leader of the thing. It's like, okay. You know, so for me, I thought they wanted to surprise us, but it's also like the least surprising thing on the planet. And so I, I don't know what the, res- I don't know how to do it otherwise, besides maybe another twist where it's like, like, you know, Cody, the Court of Owls, which is what I was hoping for. It would have been great, but I, I honestly don't think the plot could have survived another twist. Oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. You know, but it was just one of those things where it's like, and it doesn't like take the film down, but it is like a big chunk of a third of the movie is getting down to who the stool pigeon is. And it's right. like, all right, you know, that's, that's one thing where it just, it's, if you're if, it's like, okay. Oh, or even if you don't read the comics, you're like, well, that guy's obviously like a mastermind. And it's like, you find out he's the bad guy. You're like, all right, cool. Let's keep moving. You know, um, I guess it's more the fact that he was being used, that Batman is being used by the Riddler to bring him into the light, you know, to be assassinated. It's more the, the twist well, there. And it's also sort of, again, my, my original kind of comments to you, Martin, after we saw it 
the first time is that this is very much a movie and it, it's vocally stated in the dialogue that this is a movie about privilege to one de- degree or another. It's about these three orphans and how their lives are valued by society where the rich kid, you know, his story is tragic because his parents, you know, he had a, the, the son of a mayoral. Yeah. Way. He's the son of a mayoral candidate and like a, a, a rich mother who might have had some mental health issues. I don't know. De- definitely did. There was a but, newspaper clipping with her picture in it. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, they even say like if they go through to like cover all that up and everything so that the, the, the family name is preserved. But then you have Selena Kyle, who's the uh, bastard child of a gangster that she never really knew and like a working class mother who you know still clings on to this environment uh where she was essentially raised and then uh you have the riddler where he was a kid who talks about like sleeping in orphanages and how like his life was basically meaningless in the entire system and was getting eaten like chewed on by rats and shit but it's like how you're able to uh, kind of transcend your own privilege or at least to attempt to do that. And like all of that back second half stuff that really does kind of grind on and drag along. It's, it's interesting, like thematically, but as like a story itself, you're like, all right, let's fucking get to it guys. Like we got, we got a whole like third act to get through. Yeah. I, I, I do feel the film could lose 15 to 20 minutes somewhere in there. If it were to, that's the place. Yeah. I, I think that, like, I, I but at the same time, like, th- seeing it again, I, I like the pacing of the film. Like, I, I like the, that it's, it's a meal, you know, it is like a full meal of a movie. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of people's issues with the pacing comes from is that it's like, you know, the thing that, invalidates the the length conversation for me or from a lot of corners especially of like film twitter and stuff is that it's like you guys like a couple months ago were just fucking just jizzing all over the place about a two and a half hour movie whose central hook was we got five spider-men right that's it that's the movie it's like did you need two and a half hours to tell that story but now we got the this fucking three hour batman movie that's pulling like you know, 70s film references out of its ass and, and working to make like this textured environment for you to kind of just hang out in and zone out to. But like you said to me, Martin, at one point, like it, it sort of makes you eat your vegetables a little bit cinematically. And I feel like that's the issue that people have with this is that it's like, oh, this is kind of smart. Fuck that, man. I just want to zone out to three Spider-Man jizzing on each other. Well, it's it's interesting because I think that like Nolan, Nolan with Dark Knight and the the hit it was critically, the hit it was like I mean like just still to this day I mean like Ledger's Joker is like guys wear t-shirts and they dress up up for Halloween, you know. And well, they're the guys who would like subscribe to the Riddler's ethos too. Well, yeah, they're the guys. It's they're the guys who love the Joker. The guys who love Tyler Durden. It's that same kind of thing. Yeah, you know, they're the guys who started Fight Club. The movie. Fight Club. Yeah, and I'll listen so, to what one thing that I you know where I think Reeves beats Nolan is as a Batman movie. This is a better Batman movie where yes. I where I think Nolan beats Reeves with The Dark Knight. 
is the true surprising nature of the Joker's like when you watch that film for the first time and the way the Joker plays everything like that is truly kind of a mass like a masterpiece of him working the city um what well, I, I think, think outdoes the, the Riddler does it's like less surprising in the Batman um, I think Nolan's a much more propulsive storyteller too like yes. even though the Dark Knight and even the Dark Knight Rises are are probably too long as well like they're not that much shorter than this movie. They just chug along because like he knows no other way to tell a story. Like every every scene is crashing into the next one after it. Yeah, because Dark Knight you can take any, the whole Hong Kong thing out of plots. it. There's no what, Cody? Uh, as far as um, Dark Knight, like there's no there's no back corridors to that plot line. Like it's all kind of just like straightforward avenue. Well, I think there's always like. There's the argument about Dark Knight that you could lose a lot of the Hong Kong stuff. That's you know, the like, part. You just lose it. Completely. Like, you could circumvent that entirely. But again, for the same reason that I wouldn't want to see any of Reeves' stuff cut out, is that to me, that's all cool texture. Like, that just looks fucking cool on screen. And, like, I'm cool, like, hanging out with it for an extra 20 minutes. Again, to me, it's like, it's not the length, it's what you're actually filling it with. And, like, I, I'm happy to just drone out with a Batman like this that treats it honestly not that uh, too far uh, removed from like Denny uh, Villeneuve's uh, last couple films like Blade Runner 2049 or even Dune to where like they just you you get into their hypnotic kind of droney vibe and you're like all right I'm good here for the next three hours yeah absolutely yeah that's a good that's a good comparison it's it's interesting. Because before this film came out, um, whenever a, whenever a superhero film was about to come out, you'll always see, especially with MCU, they're like, oh, it's more of a horror film, actually. Oh, it's more of this. It's like bull fucking shit. It's going to be a giant sky beam at the end of the movie. Garen fucking T. It's going to be the exact same movie. And there might be like a sprinkling of a scary scene. That's well, it. Well, like Logan was one of the worst uh, oh, it's a western. Of this. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a western actually. Because yeah, Reeves was doing some of that leading up to this, to where he's like, oh, it's more like a detective serial killer movie. But what's cool is I think he actually did it, like yeah. more more so because like it's not. And Batman, the Batman thing, because of the the groundwork that Nolan and and especially Nolan and Burton both lay, but especially Nolan, I think of what we now expect from Batman films is these like very narrative twisty turny stories that we're not just wanting a straightforward like i'm gonna blow up the city we know i want to blow up the city there's a sky beam save the day you know and uh obviously it kind of went off the rails with what snyder was doing with the character but it's interesting that warner brothers right now you're saying is totally cool to take these ips like Blade Runner and Dune, which both were like a bigger bet because Batman's Batman. Everyone's going to see Batman guaranteed. It's um, WB's number one property. Yeah, hands down. Like DC, but it's just Batman. Like that, they always know like that's going to be their billion dollar movie. But well, I, think I think they let I, him play. They really let Reeves kind of play with this one. I think they're sort of blessed even with just within the Batman universe itself because part of me wonders if that's one of the reasons why they let Snyder even do the Snyder cut in the first place. So it's almost like, okay, cool. So we have this giant event thing coming up on HBO max. It's this four and a half hour quote unquote lost cut, which we all know is bullshit that yeah, he's manufacturing for streaming. 
that is for the fans of this particular take on the material. If that fucking fails, who cares? We have an entirely new take coming in eight months from like another acclaimed filmmaker that's going to play in theaters and is going to be a different type of event, you know, outs- hopefully in their minds when they're planning this, like outside right, right. of the pandemic. So it's a way to capitalize on the same property in two different mediums that's somewhat ingenious in hindsight. Yeah, I think that I just I and you called it a couple of months ago when we were talking about um, how big uh, Spider-Man No Way Home was, like just financially speaking. And it's like, yeah, there's nothing else good out there. And it's like they just knew like they're just going to take it by storm. And it was the same with the Batman. It's like, OK, everyone clear out of the way. We're going to own the theater for like a month and a half. Well, well sorry, I this... sorry if you decided to release your indie film around now, but it's not going to work out. Yeah, exactly. Well, not even indie film. It's like, sorry, West Side Story, Spider-Man's yeah. here. And now, like, West Side Story's finding its audience through streaming as well. But it's like... I think it's more, sorry, Uncharted. Yeah. It's here. Unchar- well, Uncharted, I think they had a little higher hopes for just because it is such a, a uh, long-standing... Uh, property just from a different medium and yeah. tom holland i mean yeah. the star of the other biggest too. movie like let's hope this how how much charisma does he have um yeah to carry us through obviously not enough with grandpa Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> i just love how Wahlberg that movie was in that movie was in development for so long that Wahlberg he was supposed went, to play drake he, yeah. Nate drake. he, he got grandfathered out of the fucking role and had to play slowly. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. They didn't tell him either. Yeah, like, sorry. It was in production. It was in for like 13 years in pre-production. Yep. Like, yep, there you go. Well, taking it back to the way that these movies dominate the box office right now, I mean, we just saw that, you know, AMC changed their pricing tiers and they're going to start charging like a premium for like bigger name titles like this while like smaller movies are going to cost less so it's going to all be about like the demand for the film itself but let's face it man like i know this isn't like an original thought or anything but this is it like these are the movies that make money at the box office and then in between you'll get some horror films like scream but even Scream is a legacy sequel unto itself. It's like the movies that dominate all of our mainstream conversation nowadays are like Spider-Man No Way Home, The Batman, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Scream. It's all tied uh, to pre-existing IP. The, the upcoming Doctor Strange, Multiverse yeah. of Madness. Yeah, the next Doctor Strange movie. Like, this is it for theaters. Like, the, the days... Of like, you know, us having three or four different movies to talk about in theaters every weekend is they're gone, man. Like nope. they're now basically a sporting event that we go to to go see five Spider-Man for two and a half hours, which I mean, that's so depressing to say out loud, so, even though I really like the Batman. So, Jacob, on that same vein of thought, do you think if uh, seven was released today, it would still have the the same large turnout as like the batman would or somewhere no comparable. it would it well, also no, wouldn't come out today yeah seven seven would be streaming if anything do you like, think it would be like a, be... a 10 episode series well no it's kind of like 
the closest things that we have to even like a seven are the stuff that like Hulu's putting out. Like they just put out this mid-range thriller that I believe was produced under 20th Century Fox before it was sold to Disney. But they're putting uh, this movie called No Exit out. They put it out like a week or so ago, which is just this tight, single location, bloody little thriller, you know, that was made for a mid-range budget like seven was and they just put another one out too that played at sundance called fresh that has sebastian stan and I that's why like that today yeah it's a tight little serial killer thing that kind of feels like it's happening right down the block from the hannibal universe yeah. but like those types of movies now you're making them but like they're just streamers they're they're literally going they're just content to throw onto the digital shelf that we talked about earlier, me and Martin did. Yeah, the middle the middle class they talked a while of cinema is kind of going away in terms of theaters. Like it is like oh, so it's just following the uh, you know the economics of America. A hundred percent, sort of. They, yeah, they, they you know they talk about like you were saying the middle class. I think of like that Ron Howard size film, you know, these like, or the bit smaller, but you know. Um, well, I mean, even co- Ron Howard's last one was a Netflix thing. Yeah. But they kind of call them like almost like dad movies, good like that kind of middle class yeah. thing where it's the, just the like yacht rock movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's like you know for a movie like Mercury Rising with with Bruce Willis, like that kind of size movie. It comes out in February, probably a twenty million dollar movie, you know, at that time, and it's like has a big star, but it's just like it's not a connection to an IP. And would like you say that's like the Armageddon of today, or do you think Armageddon would still be a blockbuster? Because well, Armageddon, said, you just said well, Armageddon would still be huge. Yeah, and uh, like because Bay is still one of the few name. There's still a, a handful of name spectacle filmmakers, guys like Michael Bay, Chris Cam- Nolan. Cameron. Yeah, Cameron's going to have an Avatar film this year. Like, they're still able to carry it because Shyamalan's another one, even though he's more like a mid-range guy, but he's able to release a movie on his name alone in theaters, and it's going to do pretty well. But, like, you know... Those guys are few and far between where the rest of them are going to be like, because, you know, Bay's got Ambulance coming and that's right. going to go to theaters. And I can't wait for that. fucking. I'm movie. so I fucking pumped be. for that movie. But like outside of that core group of guys, it's going to be IP stuff, horror stuff, which mostly is going to be tied to IP, except for like, let's say Jordan Peele's Nope is a big event movie because he's become like a name brand. He's Shyamalan. He's Shyamalan. Yeah, he's a Shyamalan level filmmaker. That's good. That's good. Uh, But like, yeah, the rest is just going to go to Netflix. It's going to go to streaming. I mean, hell, Scorsese's fucking $300 million Western with Leo (laughs) is going to Apple. Yep. Killers of the Flower Moon? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, on that note, He's also producing Devil in the White City with Leo, and I think that's right. Is that also going to Hulu? Yeah, I believe. No, I think that's an Apple thing too. Oh, okay. But I, I, it's hard to keep track. I mean, hell, here's a great example though, Cody, of the the type of movie we're talking about, and actually has huge stars in it as well. Is that you know the new Ben Affleck, uh, Ana de Armas. Uh, erotic thriller that was dumped from 20th century is going to go to Hulu next week. And that was directed by Adrian Lyon. It's the guy who made like fatal attraction and unfaithful. And it has two major movie stars, you know, who are box office hits in their own right. But like Affleck himself said in an interview, like not too long after the last duels, he's like, I think this might be the last duel in particular, the last movie that he releases in theaters on his right. name. He's like, the rest of my shit's just going to go to streaming because it's not 
what sells there anymore. Yeah. That's what I mean. Jumping off of that topic, and and let's end it with this. What, and I'm terrified to ask this question, but I will. What do you guys want to see from Reeves going forward? Because, I mean, with the huge success that it has had, like, he's clearly going to get another Batman movie. I mean, if we're getting a Dune part two, we're getting the Batman two for Matt Reeves. That's just a, a foregone conclusion. What do you guys want to see from the, his next movie or his trilogy, let's say? Absolutely, Martin. Oh, cool. Uh, thanks, Cody. Um, the next step, I think, will be him becoming Bruce Wayne um, because part of the character is learning how to play the playboy. And they, they get to that really quickly in Batman Begins, but like, it's a whole thing in uh, Grant Morrison's run, uh, Batman and Son, where um, in the comics where it's like, Bruce Wayne is also a performance, right? I think that'd be a cool thing about, okay, now I have to play the part of Bruce. And I think, but mixing up with that, I don't know if the film has room for it. Like you were saying, Cody, I would love to see the court of owls, which is basically the secret society that has run Gotham um, since the beginning, basically since like its foundation in like the 1800s. Is it like the Masons type thing? Yes. It's very much like that. Uh, And they're super cool. And they, um, there's these these killers that are like basically zombie killers called Talons that, you know, if you fuck with the, the they're people, they're Manchurian candidates. Yeah, they've been they're like they're brainwashed and shit. It's awesome, and um, actually, it would fit in perfectly with if if the if they we find out that the Riddler was his mystery is getting close to that because that's the whole thing. I thought it was gonna be Cowder Court of Owls because it was like oh the underbelly of the city. What's really going on would be the Court of Owls. Um, I've heard they're gonna do Mister Freeze, which I'm also very cool with. They've never done him well. Um, and it'd be cool to see, like, especially if it's still, there's like no man's land with the water still, it becomes like a winter, like kind of like escape from New York kind of thing where it's like in the city. I would love that. Um, or just a straight up, like many people vying for power, which I think is what they're setting up where it's like the penguin, other people who are going to go into the, the, the power vacuum left by Carmen Falcone. Sorry. That's my long winded answer. There's lots of shit I want to see. <laughs> Uh, now that sounds awesome. Um, I would like it. So I would love if they saved the court of owls for the third and they use yeah. that to kind of like tie together, like one and two with the third. Cause we've already had like a big, there's an underlying large, uh, power organization that's really running stuff. We had, we had that in this one. So I think if we went more and I don't want to see the Joker again, I just don't, I don't either. I think, I think it's been overplayed at this point. Um, and the, the Mr. Freeze thing, I did hear Matt Reeves uh, quoted saying he would like to do that in some sort of like some sort of grounded real world way. I'm not sure how exactly that would work, but I'm sure he could figure it out. He did fucking Planet of the Apes and made that seem tangible. So, yeah, I would definitely like to see something a little more like standalone, mono a mono kind of second run. And then in the third one, do Court of Owls and it kind of like the, the events of the first two have led to this and why they're making themselves known mm-hmm. or how he discovers them. And then maybe even in introducing a 12, 13, 14 year old Robin character that he has to be, you know, becomes his ward that he has to train that they could potentially spin off or whatever they wanted to do from there. I think Robin could totally work in this world. Yeah. I, I think that they, it, it, Robin would not have worked in Nolan's world. It just, no. I don't think it would fit, but I think it, it could fit here in this more, a little bit more mythic. Also, I want I want Alfred to have more of a role going forward. I didn't feel like he had enough to do. 
I, I Man, think they, I, I there wasn't that. enough room for him he in the film. Break the cipher at first. I was just like, oh, Alfred's into this. He's like a, yeah. this little old man doing crossword puzzles, but he's solving serial killer cases with Batman. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if he was. Did he have an accent in this or no? Was he supposed yeah. to be English? Yeah. Or, okay, yeah. so he might be like former MI6 or something. Yeah, because he said the circus. The circus is is the MI6. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's from it's from John Lecaray. So it's basically his spy days. Uh, have you watched Pennyworth? It's totally watch, worth watching. I am um, not. Where it gets into his spy background. Sorry. <laughs> I think that I would like to see Batman fuck. Like, I think that's what, what needs to happen next. Like, I'd love, like, in a, like since we just got a serial killer Batman with a little bit of gangsterdom, I'd love to see, like, an erotic thriller Batman where, like, kind of to your point, Sort of like, you know, Catwoman's gone off in another direction on her adventures. Batman has to learn now to be Bruce Wayne. Maybe Poison Ivy comes in and she's like a Black Widow, like social climber, like offing like billionaires. Then Catwoman comes back and there's like a three-way sexual like tension between them. Maybe there's an orgy. I don't think, I think they keep the costumes on the whole time. Or at least, I think what Batman fucks, he at least has to keep the cowl on. Yeah, for obvious reasons, but like well, he, make it real he, kinky and weird, and like, like have Robert Pattinson really tap into some of that Cronenberg energy. Like, just just let your freak flag fry, man. As far as the fucking in the costumes, Pattinson's Batman towards the end of this one had a specific port in the leg for injections. Yep. He just needs needs to make another port for injections. Yeah, the, the fuck suit. port. That's that's it. what I'm saying. So, I mean, like, I would totally watch. I'm only half joking about this, too, mind you. Like, I a Batman erotic thriller? Fuck yeah. Like, that would be another... I was listening to another podcast today where somebody said how, like, the Batman feels like a giant fuck you to Marvel in terms of how, like, all of their movies are criticized for being so samey and so, with like, produced with a house style where this is so filmmaker-driven and so moody and so, like, lived in and textured. Like, I'd love another fuck you to Marvel to where it's like, oh, yeah, you guys say, like, your movies have, like, people having sex in them. In this one, you see Batman dick. <laughs> bat dick. Yeah. And I think Pattinson would hang dong in a bat cow. Oh, yeah. You yeah, know. would. Wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, he's a weirdo. But anyway, guys, this has been wonderful. Cody, great to see your beautiful face again. We'll have great you back Great to see soon. you two beautiful boys as well. Good to see you, Cody. And this has been Secret Handshake. Underneath the bridge, top is sprung.